This is the part where I repeat myself, I repeat myself. Good morning and welcome to Real Talk on this March 17th morning. A very happy St. Patrick's Day to you. On behalf of myself, Ryan Jesperson, and our technical producer, Samuel G. Brooks. Good morning. A happy St. Patrick's Day, happy pal. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you, too. I, um, I've, I've got, uh, courtesy of my life partner, my beautiful wife, Carrie, I've got a, a nice green smoothie wrapped Ooh, with a, uh, green shake. Nice. a leprechaun belt. So, uh, so I'll be getting all the all the healthy stuff in today. The leprechaun belt is a nice touch. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of uh, arts and crafts creativity right there on display, <laughs> which is something that I lack. But uh, it's going to be a bit of a, a, a different St. Patrick's Day, I would imagine, for most. Uh, I've just got a uh, a text uh, from my pal Joel Whitson. We call him Whiskey. He's he's wishing me a very happy Ginger Christmas. That's what they've been calling it for years, and we have gathered uh, for many years together. Uh, of course, that's not going to happen this time around. I was thinking it, it's actually um, a bit of a, I won't say a monumental day, but it's a mile marker day uh, for me personally. I remember uh, in my previous employee, uh, previously hosted on a talk show on a, on a terrestrial radio station, March 17th of 2020 was the very first show that I did from my home. Oh, wow. Yeah. March yeah. 17th. March 16th was a Monday. And uh, did the show from the studio that morning. I remember talking to my boss at that time after the show. And I said, uh, everything was happening. Everything mm. was unfolding. The, the story of the pandemic was unfolding. Everything was becoming very real. Hockey games were getting canceled. Events were starting to, to, be, to be put on, placed on pause at that point anyway. And I went into his office and I said, boy, I guess, you know, we might be talking about me doing my show from home over the next, you know, probably week or so week or two he goes oh no 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 he goes no you're tomorrow yeah he says this will be your last show here and i said okay and i remember walking out of there with an arm full of gear and the engineers were on the way to the house to start installing stuff and and i remember thinking i wonder how long this is gonna last and that ended up being my my last day ever at the radio station march 16th you were never in the studio again hey was never in the studio again wow Yeah. yeah six months in the studio then a slight interruption and then real talk hit the air yeah. in november so uh, here we are. So one year, I wonder if I wonder if other folks will have March 17th as a day of significance for them. We're going to be talking to, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, Dr. Alexander Wong's going to join us. He's an infectious disease doctor out of Regina, Saskatchewan. Uh, you know, a lot of people have questions about these vaccines right now, uh, in particular, the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. People have been wondering if it's appropriate for seniors. There have been some questions about clotting and potential side effects. The World Health Organization uh, just hours ago giving its support to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, urging countries to utilize it. They say that, uh, quote, the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine outweigh its risks and, and recommend that vaccinations continue. This is a statement released just a short time ago today by the World Health Organization. Dr. Wong will join us in about a half an hour in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to David Knight Legg. He's a, a senior former principal secretary for Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney, the CEO of Invest Alberta. We'll talk about money matters and investment, the economy, the post-pandemic recovery. And later in the show, in about an hour and a half from now, very much looking forward to checking in with Daniel Bartholomew Poiser. He's known as the disruptor conductor. He's an orchestral conductor, uh, the subject of a CBC documentary, a remarkable guy. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing his story. He's uh, um, he says one of the only openly gay black orchestral conductors in Canada. I'm looking forward to asking him if there's another because I'm pretty sure Dan has been breaking trail 
for almost his entire life. He's just a remarkable guy. Um, and I can say it with confidence because I've known Dan uh, since we were about 10 years old. So I'm, his, his rise to stardom has been exciting for all of us. And I'm very, very proud of him. Of course, there are also items in the news today, uh, devastating stories that that we would be remiss if we didn't talk about them. And I'll look to uh, see what our real talkers are saying. Those that are catching the show live, uh, either on YouTube or listening live on Mixler, you can, of course, hit up our live comments or you can reach us using the Real Talk RJ hashtag on Twitter. That's powered by Park Power Federal Agents on Wednesday, joining investigations into horrific shootings at three spas in the Atlanta, Georgia area that left eight people dead Tuesday evening. It appears uh, that the victims were targeted. Um, Asian women, it appears, were targeted by a suspect uh, who I'm not going to name. A suspect that's in police custody uh, was arrested in nearby Woodstock after a brief manhunt and investigators now working to confirm that those shootings at different locations were related but all signs point to yes at this time uh, it's prompted a lot of conversation about the the impact of these types of targeted uh, murders on racialized communities on minority communities and of course um you know i think it goes without saying that people around the world are hurting on behalf of of these families uh and in particular uh those that are living in atlanta and surrounding area we'll have an update on that a little later on in the show and especially if if news develops through the show we'll keep you posted on that this show is proudly presented by our title sponsor bitcoin well had somebody send me a note yesterday asking me what i think i should what i thought they should do about bitcoin i said i am the wrong guy to ask i said i'm not handing out any advice on investments on savings on your approach to crypto but if you want advice They can point you in the right direction. If you want to talk to somebody that can help you make sense of what the right play is, you're seeing everybody talking about crypto, but you feel like you don't know the first thing. There are no dumb questions at Bitcoin. Well, they keep reassuring me there are no dumb questions. They're proudly headquartered right here in Edmonton, about to take over a beautiful downtown space later this year. They're going public, too. You can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, back in September, the government of Alberta announcing that uh, David Knight Leg would, well, we'll ask him if it's considered to be a promotion. I suspect it might be, but was was reassigned a top advisor to Alberta's Premier uh, Jason Kenney, his principal secretary at the time, named the chief executive officer of the Invest Alberta Corporation, also the chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group. They call it the ESG Working Group for the province of Alberta. David, welcome to the show. It's it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Is is was the move to CEO of Invest Alberta would you would you characterize that as a promotion or is that just a reassignment? <laughs> Depends on your views of our politics right now. I mean, yeah. uh it's a it's what I was doing anyway, in a lot of respects, you know, the premier asked me to come in and work on a lot of the economic files and we were spending a lot of time uh, trying to talk to uh, major investment houses about why Alberta is a great place to put their capital. We're dealing with a lot of the ESG files uh, for your listeners. That's environmental, social and governance uh, questions that investors have, because that's an, that's a screen now that a lot of investment houses are using to decide where they put their capital to work. And Alberta has a great story to tell, but we just haven't been in a lot of the markets telling it. 
Yeah, I mean, people are... So I mean, Invest Alberta will do a lot of that. Yeah, and, and I'm looking forward to getting into this, and <clears throat> I'm sure that our, our, our viewers and our listeners will have some questions, but it, but it goes without saying that that this is the type of thing, like you've just said, that, in, that investment houses or the top investors are looking at are these environmental, social, and governance models. We've heard it, even as members of the public, we've heard it, as, as some, some internationals yeah. have, have written down oil sands assets as an example how do you begin to address that, and how do you tell Alberta's story? Look, we're winners on all of the major metrics, which is the phenomenal thing. But what we've got is a, a real brand problem with the way people understand the oil sands. Uh, and so a lot, of, a lot of the investment community still operates on data that's 30 or 40 years old sometimes. And what they don't know is the top decarbonization of energy assets in the world has happened here in Alberta. So our average barrel has been decarbonized by 40% since the Kyoto Accord was signed and 21% in the last nine years alone. So when they find that out, they, they double click on it, make sure that we're telling the truth, number one. And when they find out it's true, they find out that, that we're cleaner now than a barrel of oil from California, which wasn't the case a decade ago, but now is. And we're cleaner than our new projects are cleaner than the average of all the barrels in North America. And if you look at the way you invest in energy, uh, anyone that's going to put money into energy is effectively putting it into North American assets or into the European super majors, because 80% of the industry globally is controlled by state-owned enterprise, often in very rough, rough countries. Uh, and only, only about a quarter of all of the investable assets in energy are held by free enterprise, free market shareholder-led companies, and most of those in the United States and Canada. So ESG is very critical for us. The Saudis and the, the Iranians, the, the Iraqis, the Russians, they don't care about access to capital markets because they can get their money because they're largely state-held enterprises. But we have to be very responsive to capital markets because that's where we get our capital. No one helps our energy patch out when it get, gets rough, as everybody here knows, for the last five years. But we've been a little remiss. I think we're so lucky. You know, I've just come back after being away for 25 years. And the, the number one thing I tell friends when I, when I talk to senior banking execs in New York or Hong Kong or London is I say, look, this is the luckiest country. This is the luckiest province in the world. 4.5 million people third largest oil reserves in the globe after only Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, fourth largest gas producer in the globe. You know, this little province has shipped $300 billion to fund the rest of Canada, which helps make all of the social safety net stuff work in this country, makes all of our, you know, uh, interprovincial trade possible effectively at that scale of capital. And, you know, and if, if, if Alberta was Norway, we might've just put it into our own sovereign wealth fund and, you know, have that be worth a trillion dollars right now, but we don't. We transfer it through the rest of the country. We help pay for everything that makes Canada great as a nation. And uh, and we have an amazing story to tell, but we just haven't been present telling it. We just haven't actually been in the places we need to be to tell our story. Yeah, why do you think that is? Was it because was it we didn't need to be for 30 or 40 yeah. years? Is that basically it? Yeah, that's it. Look, we're, we're Boy Scouts. Well, one thing is culturally, we're sort of Boy Scouts. We think the world is a nice place. <laughs> and it's... It's a dangerous place. You know, we don't know that we're up against 80% of the, the competitors we have. And often we don't even understand how competitive this, this sector is. 80% of those competitors sit in countries where there's a direct sovereign interest in the outcome of energy. Energy is seen not just as an economic pillar, but as a strategic pillar. And they won't play fair. So you saw in the height of COVID, the Saudis and the Russians decided to print an incremental 2 million barrels right when the price was at its worst. And they, they wanted to drive American production out of the supply chain, which they did effectively. The U.S. has lost 2 million barrels. 
they're not coming back because they don't come back at an economic value that's, that's you know, lower than the, the current sort of entry price for our barrels now, for instance. It's one of the reasons why we have record production and our all-time historic production, uh, record production being set right now and at prices that are much higher, 50% higher than they were. But what the Russians and Saudis did should show us they're not interested in playing fair. They want to win. And that's the competitive field we're in. And when it comes to things like ESG, we have to be uh, in these markets telling our story. It's a great story. Comparatively, it's the best story in the world. We do more for the transition than any other nation on earth, including the United States. We simply haven't articulated that in a way that makes sense. And when we do, we win. And you're starting to see capital come back into the oil patch. You're starting to see great big banks like Barclays, who we talked with, ensuring that their ESG policy does not negatively screen the oil sands anymore because they understood when we explained it, that the oil sands is Canadian oil production. That's a third of, third of the oil production, but it's 50% of all the democratic production in the world. And how can you have an ESG policy where you're doing business with Oman and Saudi and China and Russia, and you're through one sort of misappropriated use of terminology, the oil sands, screening out all the oil production from the only real democracy aside from the United States, it's operating at scale. Yeah, David, the same the same premise. I mean, the same general premise as w- was was applied with Ezra Levant's theory around ethical oil, and it didn't really seem to resonate ten years ago. What makes you think that that'll be a compelling message now? Well, I think the compelling message is we're not bringing the we're not bringing the framing to the market. We're not saying this is our new brand. Uh, so two 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 things. One is it's very hard to talk about yourself convincingly, right? No matter what you want to say. So we call ourselves ethical oil. But ESG is a framework that's been brought to the market by financial institutions themselves, and we're responding to it. So we're saying, what are your criteria? And they're saying they're environmental criteria, social criteria, governance criteria. On social and governance criteria, Canada is number one, with the exception on a couple files with Norway. Uh, but but at scale. We are the highest scale company on S&G by a long, long shot. No one's even close in the top 10 producers. On the environment, we check the box on four or five things that are far more important to the actual outcome of the environment than the net emissions per barrel. So first of all, net emissions per barrel, we've done better at changing and transitioning than anyone else in the world. No one's even close. And that's why we're now beating the USA's supply out of California. So you don't see anybody saying, look, we're going to screen out the oil sands and California. They would get sued. Uh, you know, they're just saying we're going to screen out the oil sands because they don't connect that necessarily to the production values of today. So we have to make sure people understand. But the reason it, it, it is not a marketing attempt on our side to assert, and I appreciate what Ezra was trying to do by asserting the ethics of Canadian oil, because he's right. What we're doing is we're responding to what the market is saying is their framework, and we're responding. You know, the more the market gets the facts, the more convinced they are that it's better to do business in Canada than it is to do business with Venezuela. And this is part of what was happening with the KXL debate. Eleven attorneys general in the states are now looking at suing the federal government on the KXL decision. That's not us. We have nothing to do with that. That's that's their choice. But it's because they're left right now with a hard choice, which is where does the United States of America, which is now no longer energy independent for the first time in the last nine years, they've lost energy independence. They have to get it from us. Mexico or Venezuela. And at scale, we're, we're cleaner, better, better socially governed. Uh, we have the same commitments to the values they have. We're open democracy. It's easier to get. It's more secure. 
And so now your choice, if you choose us over Venezuela and, and Mexico, is uh, do you want to get it by rail, truck, or by a secure pipeline, which is more emissions efficient, far safer and more secure and far more economical. So do you see that either the rumored or tangible uh, actual legal action by 11 attorneys general as as justification of sorts for Alberta investing in Keystone XL? No, 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 I wouldn't. I mean, that, that that's antecedent. And also, you never want to bet on whatever the political football is that the Republicans and Democrats want to play between each other. That's, so was that's it a bad politics. bet? Was it a bad bet? No, look, I mean, I, I don't think it was a bad bet that the federal government uh, bought TMX. I think that was an essential bet. I think we've gotten to a place in Canada where unless there's sovereign sponsorship, it's very hard to elide past the, the you know, constant conflict between the false choice of environment or economy in Canada. And so I think when, when a government chooses to step in, they're choosing to step in. This is a core piece of in- infrastructure that's putting several thousand people to work immediately. So it's a great infrastructure play in the middle of a very tough economic environment, one. So it's a good investment in our in our home team. Two, it is 800 and, you know, 860 odd barrels that go into a source of supply. And there's very little uh, plausible alternative to doing this by, by pipeline versus truck or rail. Uh, and it had a presidential permit. And once you have all those things lined up, you can decide if you want to help participate and push this through for the sake of Alberta's energy future or not. Now, I think there's often questions about how and why you make those choices, but whether those choices are rational or not, I think is beyond dispute. Uh, and it's, you know, and it's being litigated because it's such an essential part of American energy supply now. Are you just so I'm clear, are you saying that you think conversation around whether or not the KXL bet that the premier made was rational is beyond dispute. You think it's, it's a matter that's settled among Albertans that that was a rational bet. No, no, I don't think that I think Albertans uh, need to debate these things need to make sure we're doing the right thing. But I think the choice to have done that was a rational choice. Mm. I'm not saying it's beyond mm. dispute that people may agree or disagree with whether the choice was made, but on the economics, on the security of supply, and on the conditions of a full presidential permit, hmm. you know, T, uh, the the TC Energy still has open to them where they litigate under Chapter 11 of NAFTA to get, uh, you know, yeah. to get repaid yeah. for that investment. I mean, we'll see. These things will play themselves out. Here's the important thing, though. No matter how you where, where you want to come down on what the specific, uh, uh, you know, tactical choices were how rational those were in retrospect. The point is at the time there's choices being made for the sake of making sure our energy gets to market, making sure we put people to work in Alberta and making sure that we start to build a strategic energy partnership with the U.S., which is essential. And I don't think this debate is over. I mean, I think you, you see the debate. Joe Manchin, a Democrat swing vote in the Senate, wrote a letter to President Biden saying he wants to see the reinstatement of KXL. You, you, there's just a lot going on here that has to do with where we sit as a democracy globally when it comes to energy. And I think, Ryan, this is one of the things that I think has to happen with our debate. I think our debates get too parochial. In Canada, the whole debate over the Paris Accords, the whole debate over what, what we do, you know, to me, that's just so limited right now that we should be looking at the global opportunity for where Canada can play the biggest role in reducing the total amount of carbon in the atmosphere and really having an impact on climate change. We're just not there. We're so peripheral. You, you know, we, we said, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, David. 
So, so we said, we, you know, we have this rhetorical debate here, and it's surprising when you come back from overseas, you live in these smog choke cities in Asia. <clears throat> we have a rhetorical debate here right now, and it is just that, it's rhetorical, that we're committed to the Paris Accord. So what does that mean? What does it mean? Does it mean we attend conferences every four years? What does it actually mean practically? Mm-hmm. Well, technically, the math is it means we're saying in 2005, when we had 730 megatons of carbon, we're going to reduce that by 30% by 2030. So that means we're going to go to 511 megatons of carbon. So we've had, we've had 15, just about 16 years to do that. It's now 2021. How many megatons of carbon have we removed from our 730? You know what? If you, if you ask people that, nobody really knows. I'm like, where's the litigation of this so-called commitment we've made, right? We've removed 14 megatons. We're at 716. We've got nine years to go. How's that working for us? And yet, we had, this, we had this ridiculous moment in the States that a friend of mine who's working uh, down at the State Department and works on these projects, I've uh, got a couple of buddies in the environmental movement, they just said this ridiculousness of Canadian politicians being offended at the U.S. leaving the Paris Accord when the U.S. has reduced 900 megatons of carbon in the same period of time and has effectively met most of their Paris Accord commitments. Their politics is going to you know, ride back and forth on whether or not they should be a member of international trade uh, and, and UN commitments to shared international goals. I agree with that, but we, we don't have anything to stand on because we, we don't have a plan. There's no existing plan right now coming from the federal government saying, here's where we get rid of the remaining 205 megatons of carbon. Yeah. So I think the real thing Alberta needs to do, and this is what we're working on is we're saying, look, here's the reality in the world. Almost all of the net new emissions are coming from Asia, most of them from China. So China is now 31% of all the global emissions and it's rising. And their commitment under Paris is to not stop doing that until 2030. Their Paris commitment is to reach peak carbon utilization in 2030 and then to start to tail off, right? So we have a huge problem that global emissions have been exploding almost all in China. They've been reducing by, by 900 megatons in the U.S. and 800 megatons effectively in, in Europe. And that reduction has all happened because those two regions moved from using thermal coal to using uh, gas. And right now, the biggest opportunity in the world is if Canada shipped its natural gas into China and India in particular, those two, but also into Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Korea, and Japan. When you take, when you take that opportunity, we could remove more than two times Canada's entire carbon footprint. Just one LNG plant from Canada will remove 70 to 90 megatons of carbon from the atmosphere. Now, when I mentioned this to some guys in Toronto, they said, oh, but wait, what about our Paris support commitment? I started laughing. I said, what about it? 14 megatons in 15, 16 years? Really? What have you done? What have you done here in Toronto? Are you guys doing what Beijing does and going on even odd license plates on Tuesdays and Thursdays? Right? I ran an office in Beijing. I know when I know when they tamp down on carbon on the consumer side, which is 80% of the barrel. Are you gonna get serious? Because there's nothing right now Canada's done except hand wave around these issues. So, David, why are these why aren't these conversations happening? Because I mean, obviously, for example, I can probably agree with you that, you know, things like the Paris Accord, um, generally speaking, I don't want to dismiss it, but there's a lot of optics involved. There's optics involved when a when a president signs on. There's optics involved when a president pulls out. And obviously, 40, 46 thought that the optics were good enough that he wanted to sign back on on his first day uh, on, on inaugural. 
inauguration day, the same day that he killed KXL. So obviously the optics are there. You make compelling arguments and you're not the first to make these compelling arguments. So what's different no. about you in making these arguments resonate? What can Alberta do differently that Alberta's not done in the past 10 years, 12 years? Well, look, Brian, I think it's I think it's uh, three things. The first thing is you, you've already noticed a lot of politics is optics and rhetoric and mm-hmm. communications. I don't think we've been very good at it. And and I don't think this is, by the way, I, I, I don't think this is a partisan thing. I don't think it's an NDP, UCP, previous conservative thing. I think across the board, because we've been so lucky, we haven't done some of the hard work other countries have always had to do to try and make sure people understand who they are and what they can contribute. But right now, I think we're at a point where the debate has reached a point where we need to articulate probably a couple of things. One is that on the transition, we're, we're very committed to leading the world on natural gas. First of all, on, on oil, which burns at a 50% lower carbon intensity than, than thermal coal, which is being used all over the world. But also on oil, because oil is a source of just about everything else we use in our lives when it comes to plastics and materials. And people forget that. That was the source of an article I wrote recently on on chemistry. It was blown away by the lack of logic to the way we're talking about really essential polymers that create almost everything around us. That well, that comes from oil. Some of it comes from gas. But but when you when you talk about commitment to gas, right? If you think about think about how energy is used globally and what effect that has on the world, right? Right now, the worst energy use is happening in the most impoverished places because people are using wood and biomass and it's got such a low density that creates the most carbon in the world, right? And because of poverty, people are burning forests up. Then you've got coal, metallurgic and thermal. Then you've got oil. Then you've got gas. And then you've got next generation things like hydrogen. And so part of what Alberta can do is we can, we can focus on the oil uh, uh, next generation on gas and getting our gas into places that really need it and can have the biggest impact on reducing emissions globally. And we need to do this with the feds. Uh, great conversations with Ambassador Dominic Barton in China about the demand and what we could potentially do on that space, the gas transfer to replace thermal coal in, in across Asia, particularly in China. And then we've got a really exciting space with, with hydrogen right now. So one big pillar, just call it the stair step to cleaner and cleaner fuels as we continue to trade in all of the ones we've got, which are clearly needed all over the world right now, particularly in places that are impoverished. And this is one of the most important things I think for your listeners to understand. Most of the world's number one problem is not the climate. Their number one problem is 3 billion people still living in grinding poverty. That's the number one issue for them. And if you look at why Asia's emissions are skyrocketing, because they're they're moving, they've just moved 1.1 billion people out of poverty over the last a uh, decade and a half. And that has an effect on all of the demands on energy, which is why their energy demands are skyrocketing. And the nearest, most proximate sources of energy for them are currently uh, coal, oil, and gas they can get to. But we have this extraordinary reserve of this stuff they need that if they could use it, they would easily be able to get up that, that staircase, that cleaner energy staircase faster. So pillar one for us is focus on cleaner fuels. Pillar two is technology and regulation. So carbon sequestration, we're the best in the world. Carbon utilization, carbon capture. We've got, I think it's now six firms shooting for the X Prize and going to be going after Elon Musk's new prize. And the other thing is regulation. We lead the world in methane regulation. If the world used our methane regulation, we would reduce by more than 10% the entire emissions and by a quarter the emissions from the industry itself. David, does it help? I know that your job is not political. You're 
I mean, in a way, it's not. Uh, you're tied to this government, certainly. Um, but your job is to, to convince international investors. Your job is to be present in boardrooms. Your job is to be around the world, attracting this international investment to Alberta. Do dumb things like, you know, the war room fighting the Bigfoot family film. You knew it was coming up. I mean, does does the, the provincial government doubling down on its fight against the federal carbon tax do these types of things, messages that do resonate? I mean, more people in the world will know that some place called Alberta is fighting Netflix than they will about a lot of the compelling statistics you've just put in front of us. How much does that make your job more of a challenge? Look, I, I think. I think uh, I, I didn't know, and I, I hate to say this, but I've been off social media for a while. So I'm kind of, I usually find I'm like 24 to 48 hours behind a lot of things. I did know um, Alex, our mutual friend said, something might come up about Bigfoot. So I had to sort of quickly figure out what it was, but, but these things come up every two to three months. And look, I appreciate anything anybody does to try and defend what they see as Alberta's interests, uh, which need defending. My, my job is to defend those interests in boardrooms and with investment banks. But does it hurt you? Does it make large, your job harder? Funds because does it make your job me? harder? No, no. People in, I, I mean, look, when I was back and forth to London on a, on a series of trips to try and negotiate with three of the big banks there and, and four of the big uh, investment houses, the, the, one of the, the guys, the CFO of one of the banks, who was a friend of mine from, from back when we were both working in, in banking in Asia, said, look, I don't understand why you guys don't just sue. He said, that, that, that's how you get our board's attention. Hmm. Like, if you're right, sue. That's what we do. That's the, that's the coin of the realm. Now, I'm not good at what the coin of the realm is on social media and how you deal with. I mean, one thing I will say is this. We've got some good announcements coming up on some more film and TV deals. Uh, but one thing that I think we need uh, far more of is a federal provincial framework around how does the federal government, whose job it is to represent Alberta's interests and the energy interests that fuel so much of Canada's prosperity internationally, how can we get that on a much firmer fitting, footing so that this, these conversations are happening from our trade commissioners when something misrepresents us or misrepresents one of our industries? Um, you know, we... I was frustrated. I'm just making a link in my mind. We just had the bachelorette show 20,000 room nights in Jasper park lodge, but you know, we had to depend on people that just didn't get onto what was required to ensure that, that could go forward. That's incredibly frustrating to me. We we've had a couple of situations. Now you saw that the plastic op ed is all about this. We just need a much better gearing again. And I think a lot of it is just saying, let's just move away from the internecian kind of, domestic framing of a lot of these politics to what is Canada's interest here? What's Alberta's interest? How do we reflect, defend this and promote it overseas? We've got the best story in the world to tell, but often there's kind of an Ottawa versus Alberta dynamic. Yeah. And it's not just on the Alberta side. So I've, I've got some buddies that work in the federal government and they can look down their noses sometimes because it makes them feel, I don't know, uh, like they've got a, got a better commitment to the planet or their kids or the environment or something. I don't know what the, what the conceit is, but it doesn't work for me. I, I don't believe it. Yeah. Right. Well, I, had I think a, we've got I had so a... much good to do and we've got to get together in order to accomplish it. And it's just going to be better for the environment, for our economy, for our commitment to science as a, as a nation and as a province. Yeah. I had a, I had an interesting conversation with uh, federal 
Natural Resource Minister Seamus O'Regan a couple of Fridays ago, and I was actually really encouraged by the tone of it. Great guy. Great guy. And he seems to and, and he, he says that he's got a great working relationship with the energy minister with Sonia Savage. And, and, and as a matter he of does. fact, I, I, I felt somewhat encouraged uh, out of that conversation, if for no other reason that it was it, it was good to see the hand grenades stop being lobbed back and forth between the two levels of government. We've got so much we could talk about. I know I've just got a couple of minutes left with you. So let, let me ask you on a couple of other fronts. This is from Catherine, who just tweets at me. She says, I was really excited to hear the CEO of Invest Alberta on Real Talk today. I'm less excited, though, that all the talking points seem to be about the oil sands. What about investing in other energy producing tech what would you say to, or, or, or maybe not even energy producing tech what about other tech what about other business i mean you know obviously energy is huge oil and gas has been huge for alberta but, but that's not your only job no no thanks for thanks for bringing that up uh catherine no our focus is actually on if you go to investalberta.ca, this is our sort of placeholder website where we're still working on it You'll see that we've we've targeted uh, very clear sectors where we believe Alberta has a structural competitive advantage over other jurisdictions. So things like aviation, aerospace, Edmonton International Airport is one of the most important potential hubs between Chinese last mile uh, 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 categories of consumer and and business goods into North America. We want to keep building that with Tom Ruth, Myron Keene, Lynn White, and the great team there. We've got. Uh, a focus on financial business services. You'll notice we landed mCloud recently, a great AI company that moved from San Francisco and, and Vancouver with Infosys coming in from India. We've got, a, a you know, we've had Jobber raise $70 million, almost all that money when, when a tech firm raises at a VC level, they're not, they're not buying uh, hard goods or pipelines, you know, they're, they're buying talent. And uh, we're seeing enormous, we've had the highest, the last 18 months, we've had the highest venture capital results in the history of the province is growing fast. We've had, we've now got six companies that have emerged into unicorn status with billion dollar valuations or more in the last uh, 24 months. So we're seeing real momentum in these other areas. And, and we don't see it, uh, again, it's not a false choice. These are all linked. When you, have, uh, when you have the reserves we're just lucky enough to have and you have the agricultural production, which by the way, Congrats to our farm, farmers. They're having one of the best years in, in Alberta history right now. And you've got extraordinary kind of opportunity to start distributing that out to some of these huge growing markets like Asia, which we're trying to build more bridges to. Our focus as an investment agency is tell our story better, make sure we link up the people that have the capital or the opportunity to move jobs and, and people here, and make sure that we do that as fast and as effectively as possible. Let me say one other thing, Ryan, it's really important. This is not, my role is not political. Right. I, I have a I have a board that crosses the political spectrum. I have a team that crosses the political spectrum. We're here to win for Alberta. I've got two brothers that lost their jobs this last year. Uh, uh, I think like most Albertans, probably 80 percent of Albertans don't carry a, a political party card in their in their wallets. Uh, my my brother came down in the middle of the campaign, my brother Andrew, and he said, hey, I noticed some signs around uh, here for David Shepard. He's the he's the best guy. You know, we room together. I'd love to say hi to him. So I said, said hi to David. You know, David Shepard sort of was my MLA when I was in downtown Edmonton. Uh, our NDP, uh, my MLA was an NDP. -er. My my prime minister is a liberal and my premier was a conservative. And that's kind of Canada. But I think most people don't care that much about what your political stripe is, what they care, which flag you're flying or which membership card you've got. I think what they care about is it you deliver for Alberta and you deliver for the next generation and you try your best to get it right managerially. And I think 
in so many fronts, if we could tone down the rhetoric a little bit and focus on the outcomes, there's room for great, great people like Minister O'Regan, who you mentioned, who's a, who's a rock star, uh, Sonia Savage, who I have incredible respect for, was lucky enough to work with very closely on a couple files. And these people, these people love their country. They want the best for Canadians. They want the best for the next generation. Now, we gotta, we, every once in a while, you have to have a pillow fight over who's doing it best or who's going to do it right. But you got to kind of get past that and get back to, uh, you know, waking up early like everybody else does, you know, getting to work at doing the things that need to be done. And so uh, that's what Invest Alberta is doing. We're doing it with lots of people from every part of Alberta, rural Edmonton and uh, Calgary, the three solitudes of Alberta economic development, I found out. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and we're doing it with a team that's dedicated and committed. They're working weekends. They're working nights. You can ask Ask me that the other thing I love about Alberta coming back is it's still like I grew up in Lethbridge, Edmonton and Calgary are small towns too. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not, this is not a, you know, everybody knows if you're working hard for the prompts, everybody knows what your views are after a few beers, everyone knows which hockey team you actually cheer for, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. I know this <laughs> and, is, and, I mean, it's and, like the Reno and, model, right? The biggest little cities yeah, in the world. And they know what you did when you were 12 in case you forgot. I That's got back right. to Lethbridge and find out that, you know, there's a little lady who's going to hold me to account for my new role. And she's got views on the premier and how we're doing that, you know, you couldn't share on, on air, but, but everybody owns a piece of everyone in this province. So what makes, it's what makes us great. And it's, it what's, it's what makes our opportunity to tell our story great. Cause this really is a uniquely great place. David, I appreciate your time. I've got a, an infectious diseases doctor that I've got to get to, but I've got a couple questions here. They've been submitted. An actual and, and, professional. And, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to get them. And I know, I mean, geez, infectious diseases doctors, we got to let them get to work. So, but let me ask you this, yeah. Th- this from Chris, this is a great point. I want to ask you two questions in two minutes. Hopefully we can do it. Uh, Chris says the knowledge economy will rely on talent more than ever and talent will gravitate to livability. What's the strategy for improving livability in Alberta to attract and retain talent? Well, look, I, I think, first of all, a lot of what makes uh, Alberta great is coming from Albertans creating the dynamics. So we, we have people building amazing things. We've got some indigenous communities coming up with some great things. I think Edmonton is a gateway to the north. You're going to see that start to develop. Livability is already, we, we already score the highest, most affordable city in Canada, big city is Edmonton, uh, most livable city by the Economist Intelligence Unit is Calgary. The mayors are doing a great job at focusing on how to make these cities terrific magnets. And we're seeing lots of these smaller communities actually attract, attracting some very big economic development now. Our lifestyle is actually one of the key pieces of what we're calling, when we're initially pitching this round, we we're talking to sort of call it the boardroom pitch good on tax, regulation, supply chain, global connectivity, all that stuff. What's emerged in the last three months of pitching is what we call the employee value proposition pitch. Because post-pandemic, a lot of these major firms are saying, we may not move our company there, but we might move a division of 400, 600 people there because the lifestyle is incredible. Your commute goes from an hour and 20 minutes to 20. The schools, everything's more affordable. The You can get out to the mountains. A uh, young family just getting started can have great vacations or staycations at a you know small amount of what they would pay if they were anywhere else, and it, it's, uh, it's taking off. So I think we're focusing on telling the story of the livability, uh, and the story is great. We'll make this the last question. It's a pointed one from Brad, who says attracting foreign investment while Alberta businesses are on sale sounds like a garage sale. 
would Mr. Nightleg consider a foreign acquisition of an Alberta based business a success? Um, you know what? There's there's a lot of answers to that. It's hard to answer that fast. But the first thing is what 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 we consider a success is when Alberta companies, great companies in Alberta decide to, you know, we, we had, for instance, I had a friend when Solium got bought by Morgan Stanley, that was a deal that, that was actually being watched by some friends of mine who were in, in the game, you know, and they said, what a, what a horrible outcome for Alberta, you know, so terrible. They should have sold when they were worth 3.5 to four. We're running the numbers. I started laughing. I said, how do you think everyone that built Solium from the ground up feels, you know, you just sold your company for a billion one, it's a rain dance. And a lot, I know a lot of people who were part of that. They're now reinvesting in a lot of startups and a lot of things in the community here. Look, we, we have more startups per hundred thousand than any other part of the country. We have the youngest demographic in the country, age 36. We have the fastest growing population in the country. We actually grew over this terrible last year uh, in, in spite of everything. Uh, most of the country shrunk. Uh, we, we have an extraordinary kind of startup culture. People are going to build things. If we have foreign capital coming in, uh, most of it that's come in so far is looking at buying assets or investing in in producing these things. So most of it, I'd say 80 to 90 percent is not looking at acquiring an asset. But if you would acquire an asset in Alberta, you're committing to hire people here. You're committing to reinvest in that asset and to build it. So I'm a little agnostic on whether the capital comes from some guy from Lethbridge or some guy from London. Hmm. Right. If what they're doing is putting their capital into something here, buying something that sits here, employs people here and builds things here. And that's part of being, you know, that's we're not offended when uh, when our our teams go overseas and buy capital, buy assets overseas. We think it's great, but it's their choice and it requires them to invest in jobs overseas. I'll tell you what I it's sort of and I realize there's layers to this. we got to go. But um, what I want to see is that Albertans have the confidence that some of these foreign investors have in our economy again. We're seeing enormous interest across, around the world. And I think Albertans feel a little beaten down right now, but the closer you get to where we're at in the, in the commodity super cycle on a lot of the things we've got here, the more confident I think our home team will be in buying and investing here. And we want to see less capital from great Albertan companies focused overseas and a lot of it coming back and employing and expanding the Alberta story here as well. David Nightleg, chairman of the Environmental, Social and Governance Working Group for the province of Alberta, the chief executive officer of the Invest Alberta Corporation. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for your availability. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, congrats on being like the top. I've heard number one and number two podcasts. So keep we, it going, man. We're, we're fighting it out for that top spot every day. We appreciate it. Keep Thanks. Going. You got it. I'll come we back will. We get on the top spot and we'll get you to co-brand some Invest Alberta stuff. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. We'll have our people talk oh, yeah. to your people, David. Thanks very much. Okay. There you go, sounds David Nightleg. Appreciate that conversation. Well, talking about the economy, uh, might as well give a shout out to the uh, Faculty of Graduate Studies and Research at the University of, uh, University of Alberta. It feels like a perfect time to remind you about this three-minute thesis uh, competition that they have coming up. Hey, Sam, check this out. I want to share my screen with you, buddy. Here it is. This is uh, uab.ca slash 3MT. It's nice and easy to find. uab.ca slash 3MT. You know, there's thousands of uh, researchers that are doing incredible stuff at the U of A, and on top of that, they're doing a great job telling their stories. The three-minute thesis competition goes live on April 1st. I'm honored to be one of the judges. I'm honored to be hosting the event, and I'm excited to tell you that on Friday, April 2nd, 
We're going to have the People's Choice winner and the first and second place winners featured on a roundtable here on Real Talk. It's going to be excellent. Ahead of time, I encourage you to check it out at uab.ca slash 3MT. Also wanted to remind you that the team at Grand Dog Essentials is putting out quality raw dog food each and every day as part of their family-owned business, and they're delivering it to doorsteps in Calgary, Central Alberta, around Red Deer, and Edmonton as well. Our dogs are taking advantage of the science that's gone in to their supplements a daily probiotic for healthy dogs or dogs with digestive or immune issues. They've got the digestive enzymes that can help out the dogs that have a difficult time digesting their food. If, if that's one of your dogs, I don't have to explain to you what that looks like. And then they've got a new kid in town. If you've been big on fish oil, how about the green-lipped muscle oil? It's loaded with the immune-boosting omega-3. You can learn more at granddog.ca. And if you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll give you 10% off your first order. I'm grateful that our next guest has been able to, to make time for us in what is no doubt a busy day for him. Dr. Alexander Wong is an infectious diseases physician in Regina, Saskatchewan. He also provides care for persons living with addictions, uh, persons who are vulnerable and marginalized, such as those in prisons. Dr. Wong enjoys educating the public with facts and evidence, not propaganda and fear. My man. Welcome to Real Talk, and thank you for making time for us. Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, you know, we, we left you sitting here for a second, and I'm grateful for your patience because I'm talking to, you know, uh, you know, one of the, you know, the big players when it comes to Alberta's economy and getting energy markets moving. And here you are, and the message, at least based on the introduction or the bio you provided to us, has been consistent, and that is moving away from propaganda, moving away from politics whenever possible. And focusing on facts and evidence, I would suggest that a pandemic has probably been, at least in your world, pretty huge in maybe reiterating some of the important pillars of of the medicine that you practice. It uh, it's been an interesting year. Um, it's it's been a memorable year. It's been, you know, it's been really difficult to really predict. And there's been lots of highs and lots of lows. Um, so. Uh, you know, about a year ago at this time, we 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 were presented with some material showing that our system was going to get overrun. Uh, everything was kind of lost and there was complete panic. I felt like this lump in my uh, throat and in my stomach thinking that, you know, we needed to lock everything down immediately. And that messaging needed to get out to the policymakers and to the public. And that's kind of what happened. And then it sort of petered out a little bit. And so, you know, like Alberta, Saskatchewan's kind of followed some similar principles in terms of, you know, not necessarily pushing super aggressive lockdown approaches. And, you know, like Alberta, we've kind of been right at the cusp at times in terms of, uh, you know, our system uh, just kind of getting right to the breaking point, but not quite getting over that breaking point. Uh, and now it's concerning because we've got these variants. Uh, uh, you know, I'm living in a city now where, we have probably the highest proportion of variants uh, in the country, perhaps. I mean, probably over 90% at this stage. We know these variants are more aggressive, more virulent, more deadly. So again, there's these unknowns as we're waiting to try to get vaccine out. It's, it's a scary time. And I'll just throw in that, again, the pandemic has really laid bare, you know, the inequities and the inequalities that exist in society. And so it really is our disadvantaged, vulnerable, you know, seniors, long-term care 
residents, uh, you know, racialized populations, persons with mental health and addictions related issues, you know, the people that don't have the ability to work from home, people that don't have privilege, people that don't have, you know, the resources to be able to get by small business owners as well, you know, and the working poor that don't have access to, you know, the same kind of social supports, you know, when they can't, when they can't work and when they have to isolate. And so, you know, I felt that it's been my role and our role to advocate for those populations. And like in Alberta and like in Western Canada, we've really seen, you know, some tremendously bad stuff with respect to opioid uh, overdoses, fentanyl overdoses, all the rest of that. So it's been it's been really a remarkable year. We're not out of it yet, but uh, there's potentially, hopefully, some light at the end of the tunnel. We just need to get these vaccines rolled out and try to keep the public as in check as possible with respect to the restrictions and guidelines. Doctor, we've seen, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've brought up uh, marginalized populations and some of the things, some of the trends that we've seen, many of them are heartbreaking. Um, you know, I think in Alberta, I think of, of the meatpacking plants, that was a story uh, and has been a story through the pandemic, but most notably early uh, in this pandemic was a huge story across Canada. And, and many of those were, um, you know, workers that were working in close proximity to one another without necessary protections. And then because of their socioeconomic circumstance, many of them living together as well um, in, 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 in living situations that might be quite uncomfortable for folks that are accustomed to the, the comforts and the privilege, as you've described it. Had a fascinating conversation with uh, an Indo-Canadian uh, friend of mine. Harman Candola came on the show and we were talking about some of the infection rates. Now, this is months ago, uh, but but in northeast Calgary and, and, and many people were pointing to some of these as, as, as racialized communities. Harman's saying these are people that work uh, as drivers. These are purple people that are that are working on the front lines of things like food service, uh, people that didn't have the option of shutting things down and, and relying on savings. Um, these are some of the stories that we've endeavored to dig into and to better understand. Is there a story? Is there a trend that has not seen the light of day that has not seen the public discourse or awareness that's all over your radar? Not really, uh, you know, but I mean, for me, the big one, just in terms of the day to day work that I do, uh, you know, I'm an infectious disease physician. I actually did all of my postgraduate training in Edmonton uh, at the U of A. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'm certain you've had uh, colleagues of mine on the show, like Dr. Saxinger and so forth, uh, you know, who have been uh, really prominent in the media. They were my mentors and my teachers basically when I was going through. Um, and so, I, again, I mean, I, I think what it sort of highlights in all of this is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people in our society, a large proportion, probably 40, 50 percent of people who are literally living on the edge paycheck to paycheck or, you know, sort of social assistance check to social assistance check every single day. And, you know, when something happens, whether it's COVID, whether it's your close contact and you need to be isolated. Uh, or something that disrupts your day-to-day -day sort of situation, you know, you don't have any reserve to be able to cope with that. Um, and, you know, at least here in Saskatchewan, and I suspect in other parts of Canada as well, we basically were scared of multiple waves uh, that we saw kind of run through. And our most recent wave, the one that sort of continues to sort of flame, but is slowly kind of petering out. Now we've got the variants kind of potentially blowing things up again, kind of went through our inner city vulnerable populations. And these are not people that have the ability to isolate, the ability to follow the public health guidance, because there's other things 
like day-to-day life, you know, mental health and addictions related issues, or just kind of making ends meet day-to-day that take precedence. So all of this has been highlighted many, many times. And, you know, my colleagues in the public health world, I think uh, Dr. Tam, you know, from, from PHAC just kind of spoke to this over the weekend on the media talking about, again, how these populations, we talked about racialized populations, again, it's a disproportionate number of immigrant refugee populations who are doing this, you know, front facing essential work that keeps all of the rest of society going forward. Um, and so the fact that the fact that it's all been highlighted is there, I, I think the big question going forward, and these are big questions that neither you or I probably have the ability to answer is whether the policymakers are going to look at all of it and and really make some meaningful change. I mean, we really have to start with the most basic pieces around long-term care. I mean, long-term care was and continues to be, uh, you know, a, a, a giant disaster for the most part, uh, you know, for-profit settings and so forth. And it was, it was going to happen. And whether or not anything is going to meaningfully change before we have the next pandemic remains hard to say. You can be optimistic, but, you know, history teaches us that change is tough. I love interviewing people like you because I have my list of questions here, but the more that you talk and the more insight you provide, I'm just taking those questions and getting rid of them because you're you're planting all these new seeds. I mean, you say I mean, you say when the next pandemic hits and 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 you're an infectious disease specialist, a physician with with experience and insight that most of us don't have. Um, you know, it reminds me of wildfires. I mean, as a journalist, I've covered wildfires and floods in Alberta, and we've had, you know, two and arguably three once in a century events uh, in the last 10 years. And I think we've become accustomed. We look at all oh, Spanish flu in 1918 and then COVID-19. And so our grandkids, grandkids can deal with the next one. Do, do you see signs or is there reason to believe that we maybe uh, perhaps there's a need for us to get used to this type of thing or to, to develop better or more serious protocol for response? Uh, the short answer is I, I certainly hope, you know, that this is the worst pandemic that we will experience in our lifetimes. And we obviously have no way to meaningfully predict what's yeah. going to happen. I can't say that I can't say that there's anything. Ha- I mean, there's actually a little flare up of Ebola actually happening right now, but it's, it's just very, very mild and hopefully, you know, not going to sort of get out of hand. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that it, it all comes down to preparedness. And, you know, uh, in this day and age, I think with policymakers, politicians, and, you know, even people sort of running all of our various uh, healthcare and public health systems, everything is about now, 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 not thinking about sort of what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And, you know, again, that sort of planning, that sort of uh, ability to prepare for, you know, when something happens and being able to respond quickly is absolutely crucial. And we've seen basically around most of the world, not everywhere, there are pockets of jurisdictions that have actually done remarkably well with the pandemic, but many, many others just basically, it's literally going day to day, month to month, year to year, and that's driven by many things, the main one being the fact that we have like a relatively short election cycle. So, you know, policymakers are always sort of balancing these decisions, I think, around, uh, you know, what what's going to you know provide immediate benefit versus sort of looking at the long term preventative stuff. And so public health always takes a back seat in the end, uh, which is disappointing. Uh, and that's kind of why, you know, we never end up sort of addressing the big sort of upstream issues. Uh, around inequities and inequalities and, you know, preparedness for public health sort of pandemic stuff. That's all the upstream stuff 
that takes, you know, uh, years or perhaps even decades to actually sort of benefit from, but the long-term benefits are extraordinary. It's just, it's hard to see those things. And, uh, you know, so most of the general public wants, you know, right here, right now. So you yeah. get like a $2 stimulus. And, and, and there's this, I mean, you talk about these variants that are spreading. You talk about your hometown or your home province, you know, Regina, Saskatchewan, and, and, and how you're seeing almost a disproportionate spread of that. And, and at the same time, and th- this, I don't have a question coming to you. This is an observation. Um, we, uh, you know, I've talked to physicians, specialists, uh, you've mentioned a couple of them already, and, and you that have said that this is something that needs to be taken very seriously. There are some questions by civilians, and I want to pick your brain on that, on the on the efficacy of these new vaccines with these new variants. Um, and at the same time, governments, provincial, municipal, provincial, federal, are being pressured to reopen the economy, uh, to, to reopen entertainment options for people. Um, we're talking about COVID fatigue, and I just don't know how you reconcile these, these parallel storylines, right? The, the rise of infection rates and, and the implications it could have on the healthcare system and, and, and then COVID fatigue on the flip side, which very well may be exacerbating the problem we've just identified. Yeah, uh, it is an incredibly difficult balance. And this is part of why I think uh, that it's it's often easy to criticize. It, it's, it's, it's a simple and, and it's an often sort of uh, easy thing to do. And so I, yeah, I literally just started on Twitter. I, I know absolutely nothing about social media. I, I'm such a newbie. I see that my, I've actually got my freaking toothbrush and toothpaste in the background here, which I should have taken off. Uh, so that's how much that's how much of a newbie I am in this space. But one thing that I understand is that is that um, you know our public health uh, our public health lead, Dr. Shahab here in here in Saskatchewan, and then uh, Dr. Hinshaw in Alberta, they have incredibly difficult jobs trying to balance all of the various competing interests around, you know, what policymakers want, what the general public wants, what all the different sort of subgroups within the general public want. And, you know, for those of us in the medical profession, like people like myself as a simple infectious disease clinician, and then all my public health colleagues, we're always going to emphasize the danger and push for more aggressive approaches to try to keep our system from getting overwhelmed, right? That's just the default thing that we're going to do because that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to our healthcare system and making certain that we don't get overwhelmed. At the same time, there's many, many other pieces with, you know, the general public, small business owners, you know, and all the fatigue, the mental health related challenges and so forth. So this is not simple. So truly in the end, um, I, I am not someone who, uh, again, if we all had a crystal ball and we knew exactly what the right time would be to implement every single decision, life would be simple. Uh, that's obviously anybody who, 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 who basically speaks about this in a, in a completely definitive way, like they somehow know exactly what is going to happen is is that you got to sort of you got to sort of take a look at that and you got to sort of think twice because nobody really really knows i mean we have had multiple times during the course of this outbreak where we basically thought the world was going to end i've had two of those moments already like the last year at this time Mm -hmm. then around last fall at this time with the next wave there's that fear that panic like things are going to blow up and now i'm in that same situation again variance 90 percent, maybe more you know, worst place in the country, like, is it going to blow up? So it's easy to just go right ahead and say, you know what, people need to lock down, people need to do this and that. 
that is the right thing to do in regards to all of the variants of concern, but everything has petered out so far. And so we don't know, we don't know. And so being divisive and divisiveness is not something that's helpful. And I think for myself, again, as a simple clinician, my responsibility is to talk to my public health colleagues and to echo what it is that they feel is best and not to be divisive, not to say, you know, well, I think the government should do this or I think the government should that. I mean, we're all in this together. And in the end, you know, if, if there's lots of mixed messaging coming forward, it doesn't make it easier, I think, for the general public to know what it is that they have to do. Well, I mean, when it comes to mixed messaging and, and the divisive nature of all of this, I mean, when it comes down to it, we said early something that I hope would not be profound, that this show will side with science. And we're grateful to have uh, and that's not to say that research doesn't continue. And, and, you know, people that would suggest that science is settled on certain matters, I think, have been proven wrong on the covid file for sure, in that it is a constant learning process. Um, let me ask you about this. After we confirmed you to do the show in between then and now, the World Health Organization has, has officially given its support to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. When, when we talk about what's going to provide some people and many people, I think, peace of mind. It's going to be getting the jab in the arm and it's going to be knowing that other people are vaccinated as well. Um, more than a dozen European countries, including France, Germany and Italy, have stopped using the vaccine in the wake of reports that 37 people develop blood clots. I mean, for context, millions of vaccination shots have been given. Um, at least two of those people died. Uh, there have been some concerns about people over 65 receiving the AstraZeneca vaccination. Where do you stand on it? Can you bring us up to speed? There is so much white noise about vaccines that the average person like me um, has a really difficult time knowing which way is up and who's right. Absolutely, Ryan. Maybe what I can do is I can just kind of start with some bottom line messaging, like Great. some take home stuff, because honestly, like once you sort of get into all the details, I think people's eyes start just glossing over and I people agree. are like, you know what, just get to the point. Um, the, the bottom line here is, is that um, there has been what I think a lot of people would simply perceive as mixed messaging, but it's not mixed messaging. It, it's just the fact that data and facts and, and, and numbers and, and science continually changes. And it has been extraordinary with the pandemic and with vaccines and everything else, how quickly everything changes. So bottom line here, I think take home, you know, for everybody that's potentially angsting about AstraZeneca, and maybe we're going to talk a little bit about sort of vaccine shopping or, you know, whether or not you want one over the other, I could definitely talk about some of that. But, you know, I think the tagline that we've been focused on here in our province and, you know, the one that I've kind of tried to say over and over and over again is that the best vaccine and the most effective vaccine is the one that you're offered. And there's great data basically that suggests, I'm not going to echo all this stuff to say it once, that all the vaccines that we currently have approved here in Canada, whether that's the two mRNA vaccines, the uh, Moderna or Pfizer, or uh, the uh, uh, vector vaccines, the AstraZeneca and the recently approved J&J vaccine, all of them do, again, an extraordinary job at significantly reducing the key clinical pieces that we care about, which are severe illness, hospitalizations and deaths by like close to 100%. So that's the difference basically, if you are vaccinated and then you get COVID, that's the difference between you basically potentially going to ICU, getting intubated and maybe ending up in a box versus basically being at home for a few days with the sniffles. So that's that's a massive difference. And for our system as well, that's a massive difference. Mm. Um, so getting to the questions around sort of AstraZeneca vaccine specifically, because there's been a lot of changes the last few days. Does it cause blood clots? Does it cause bleeding? Bottom line is, is that 
I wouldn't go so far as to say that the issue has been completely 100% put to bed, but the bottom line here is, is that no vaccine has ever been shown to have any association with blood clots or severe bleeding events. And there's no reason to believe, there's no reason to really believe that, uh, that any of these vaccines or the AstraZeneca vaccine or any of the COVID vaccines for that matter would be fundamentally different. So the problem is, is that people get blood clots and bad things happen to people, you know, all the time. And that may or may not have anything to do with the fact that they've had something happen to them, like receive vaccine. So there's a big difference between seeing that bad things happen after something has occurred and actually uh, saying that there's a very clear association between, you know, getting a vaccine and having clots or having severe events occur. So the bottom line, I think, in the European uh, side of things, first of all, is is that the the baseline rates of uh, clots and severe bleeding events are not fundamentally different, uh, you know, in Europe or elsewhere compared to uh, what we're currently seeing with AstraZeneca. So it, it's very similar to the background rates. There's no increased rates of events occurring. We're just seeing again a large proportion of people get vaccinated. And unfortunately, for reasons that have probably absolutely nothing to do with vaccine, stuff like blood clots happen, stuff like severe bleeding events actually happen. And so it's super important to do this kind of what's called post-marketing sort of surveillance stuff, where we're constantly watching for potential bad things that may be caused by vaccine. But again, yesterday, the European Medicines Association, which is their version of sort of like Health Canada or the FDA, came out and said there's no association, it's safe. The EMA never at any point in time said that they felt that they needed to shut everything down. And there's some. Uh, there was just an article last night in the New York Times just kind of talking about how there was a lot of political pressure on leaders across Europe. Basically, once Germany said, whoa, we got to kind of put a halt on all this, everybody else was like, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to do the same thing you know, to show solidarity and to, you know, and to kind of be unified about it, but also to kind of be safe. What if Germany's right and we keep going forward and something bad happens? It's always about risk mitigation in these types of situations. Yeah, this is that New York so, Times piece you're talking about there. Europe's there vaccine you suspension right. may be driven by politics. Yeah. Yeah. And so bottom line is, is that uh, so to answer the question regarding clots and, 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 and bleeding events, we don't think that there's any association. I mean, that's been echoed very clearly. Here in North America, both by the FDA as well as by, uh, although the FDA hasn't officially approved AstraZeneca yet, I mean, there's been no commentary saying that it's problematic. Health Canada, Public Health Agency of Canada and so forth have all said the same thing. And so, you know, we're kind of good to go. So then the next question you would ask, I'm kind of rambling here a little, so feel free to cut me off. Ramble on, Doc. The 65, the 65 and over population. So why... Why was there an initial recommendation from our immunizing body, which is NASI, um, around uh, the fact that they only kind of said that it was okay for people sort of up to and including age 64. The bottom line was that the data that was published around AstraZeneca's vaccine at the end of 2020, which was published, there were not a large number of individuals over the age of 65 in that clinical trial. It was basically about 600 plus individuals uh, that were 65 plus, both in the arm that received vaccine and the arm that didn't re receive vaccine, the so-called placebo arm. So uh, that weren't that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. Uh, that weren't. Uh, I can't even get my grammar right. The the numbers basically were not high enough to actually make a meaningful statistical conclusion to say 
that the vaccine was efficacious in 65 plus individuals because the number of individuals that actually got the virus was very, very low. And right. so when you have that situation where there's relatively small numbers, you can't really make a conclusive uh, argument based on the statistics around the fact that, so that's the reason why they said, you know what, the data doesn't exist. They didn't say the data shows that it doesn't work. They didn't say that uh, the data shows uh, that it's not efficacious. They just said it doesn't exist. And so, but now what we have is we have lots of emerging real world data from mostly uh, you know countries in Europe and Israel who have been much more aggressive in terms of rolling out AstraZeneca vaccine that show that, you know, regardless of your age, if you receive AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, again, those outcomes that we talked about, severe illness, hospitalizations, deaths, doesn't matter your age, significantly reduced. So that real world data is continuing to evolve and we're getting that literally on a day by day, week by week basis. That the sum total of all that real world data that we're seeing now from the first basically, you know, two and a half, three months of vaccine rollout with AstraZeneca has led the body of evidence to change and to support the fact that, yeah, maybe the clinical trial didn't have, you know, enough people to make a statistical conclusion to say that it was efficacious, but the real world data now does. And so that is why the recommendations changed. Um, and it's not, again, it's not about flip-flopping. It's about being as nimble as possible when it comes to responding to all of the real world data that, you know, that we're getting literally on a day by day, week by week basis. And a body like NASI is not one person. It's a group of experts. You can't take a group of super busy people and just put them together in a room, literally not in a room, in a virtual room, you know, uh, you know, that quickly. So, uh, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for that team you know, who are working on trying to produce the best possible guidelines. And the problem with all of this is that, again, people frame it as mixed messaging. People then potentially use it to criticize the fact that people don't necessarily know what they're talking about or what's going on. And all we can do is, you know, sort of uh, people that are advocating for good science is to try to explain all of that and to try to do it in a way that's that's not inflammatory and, 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 and you know, is, is, is calm and rational. Doctor, um, the time that we've asked you for has 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 we've reached that point, but I've got a few more questions. Uh, obviously, we respect your time and there's no pressure. Are you able to stick yeah. with us for a few more minutes? Okay, to, I'm okay. I'm okay to stick a bit longer. Okay, that's it's great. We, I want to read you some of the comments, by the way. First of all, a lot of people commenting on your toothbrush and your toothpaste saying there's absolutely they're saying it's not the worst thing we've seen on screen. They're saying there's at oh. they said there's absolutely nothing wrong with promoting good dental hygiene. Um, you're you're actually you're getting a lot of support there doc uh gina gina says dr wong thank you for your advocacy in saskatchewan with regard to lockdowns and pushing the government there most of my family lives there and it is a scary uh situation um you know others say uh you know uh, appreciating the approach that you're taking to this um but questions around there's one in particular this is a really good one from heidi who says for years epidemiologists were warning about overuse of antibiotics and sanitizers and how they may kill our immune systems, creating superbugs. Now we are back at massive use, at least of sanitizers by necessity. Is there a problem brewing here or no? Uh, 
I would say not right now because you know what hand hygiene really matters in the midst of a pandemic. And so, you know, just go bonkers with the hand sanitizer, wash your hands like crazy. I, I, I don't think that, you know, I, I mean, the point that's made is definitely a, a real one. Um, and overuse of antibiotics is definitely real. We definitely have issues with antibiotic resistance. I could literally speak hours about that topic. So I'm not going to go off that huge tangent right now, but right now in the midst of a pandemic, man, like we got to do all the basic things that are required to basically not get sick. And so those basic pieces like distancing, masking, uh, washing your hands constantly, whether that's with sanitizer or better yet, soap and water in a reliable fashion. Those are some basic pieces that I, I would not in any way, shape or form want to discourage that for any reason, because even though, I mean, with all things that we do, it's a balance between benefits and risks. And right now, you know, uh, less so with antibiotics we're not really using antibiotics per se i like to deal with sort of you know COVID 19 per se so that's a whole different topic but with regards to the hand sanitizer stuff just just use it just just wash your hands like crazy you cannot wash your hands enough under these circumstances perfect you you talked about vaccine shopping so to speak and and it seems to me that the consensus perspective has been the best vaccine is the one that's being offered to you uh what's your take on that yeah, I, 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 I believe very strongly in that. Again, part of the challenge here was some of the messaging uh, at the beginning, right, around, I mean, everybody focuses on sort of like this top line efficacy data around sort of preventing illness. And so the problem with this, and again, I don't necessarily want to go on a massive tangent about all this, I could speak for hours, but um, uh, when you're sort of looking at all these different studies, you have to sort of try and understand that, you know, these studies are taking places, uh, taking place at different times in different parts of the world, and your numbers and the statistics and all the rest of it, it's all going to be driven by what the epidemiology is in the study population and the study setting that you're sort of uh, conducting your work in. So, for example, AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, they've done multiple studies in different parts of the world, Latin America, Brazil, and then, you know, South Africa, and then in North America, for example, and there's data that has come out now showing that AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, does not have great efficaciousness against mild to moderate sort of uh, illness caused by South African variant. And it was studied at a time when there was huge amounts of community transmission occurring in South Africa. And when you're thinking about a younger population, you know, basically people, I don't know, far younger than me, uh, people are not really, that population truly is not probably paying that much attention to public health guidance and isolating and all the rest of it, right? Compared to others who have, you know, comorbidities or, you know, uh, other related sort of, uh, you know, sort of high risk type medical conditions. And so if you test a vaccine in that kind of a setting and that kind of population, it's going to be very, very different than, for example, with the mRNA vaccines, which were studied in the United States. They kind of started in the summer and the fall when things were for the most part kind of petering out in the US and there was relatively low community transmission rates uh, overall. And so that's why you see like 90% efficacy for the mRNA vaccines overall versus, you know, 60, 70% efficacy for the vector vaccines like J&J and, uh, and, and AstraZeneca. It's not to necessarily say that one is somehow better or, you know, more efficacious than the other. All of the vaccines that we have do seem to have uh, reasonable uh, and meaningful clinical activity against the UK variant, which is probably the one that is going to largely circulate here in Canada over time. Uh, it's obviously rising at different rates in different jurisdictions. 
Um, uh, but again, I mean, there's good data to support the fact that all the vaccines have reasonable efficaciousness, and all of these companies are working on additional vaccine and boosters to sort of reflect the fact that uh, these va- that these uh, variants are going to continue to drive transmission sort of going forward. So bottom line at the end of the day, I can understand why there's a proportion of the population, for example, with AstraZeneca, it's the one that's kind of been bashed the most, right? Um, between the blood clot stuff and the bleeding stuff and the 65 plus stuff, is it safe? Does it work? That's been tough. Again, bottom line here is that um, it is safe. It does work. It's safe for people over the age of 65. There is not an association with clots and bleeding. Go and get whatever you can get first. Um, because again, that could literally be the difference between you being at home with the sniffles and you know you being in the ICU. So uh, yeah, that's, I think, the key message that we really want to kind of push home to everybody. I've got three questions for you. Uh, they're all from viewers that are tuned in live right now. They're excellent ones. And I want to end on one that, that, that has an international social justice angle, which I suspect may resonate with you, doctor, considering where and how you practice your medicine and with whom you interact. Uh, your conviction is what I'm describing. But first, this from Aaron. We, we've spoken to Dr. Timothy Caulfield at the University of Alberta. We've talked to psychologists about this, and I think you'll probably have your own take as well. Aaron, a great question. Uh, please ask Dr. Wong if he has any quick snappy talking points we could share with vaccine hesitant friends and family aaron says i'm i'm struggling with how to share meaningful information in a brief and approachable way that's a really good question and i mean tim caulfield is obviously like the one of the world experts in this subject um you know around messaging all this i i think what I would probably say is I would start by trying to keep things simple. And at the same time, I think, you know, there's certain hills that you just are not going to get up to the top of. And so if there's someone that is just really sort of, uh, you know, sort of set and, you know, there's a conviction there that vaccines are bad, you know, that the risks outweigh benefits for whatever reason, whatever reason, uh, you know, they, they believe that, uh, then, you know what, that's probably not necessarily the right person or the right group of individuals to probably try to engage in some discussion with. I think if we're thinking more about so-called vaccine hesitant individuals, people that, you know, are, are thinking about the vaccine, but are worried about, you know, the risks. Uh, again, what I would probably say first and foremost is that all the COVID-19 vaccines that we, that we have uh, available to us here in Canada are safe, are efficacious, there is no agenda here with Health Canada. There is no agenda with the Public Health Agency of Canada. And vaccines are our ticket out of the pandemic and your individual ticket out of the pandemic as well. And not only are you protecting yourself, but you're also protecting others by promoting, you know, herd immunity. And so, you know, there's a, so there's a individual benefit, but at the same time, there's a societal level benefit as well. And all this uh, stuff around sort of the so-called mixed messaging and so forth, we just kind of have to be really, really clear. There is no risk, uh, you know, uh, there is no danger with regards to these vaccines and it's basically a complete no-brainer. So when I speak with patients who are calling me and asking me about whether to get vaccine, for example, people that have HIV or other immunocompromising conditions, I just say flat out zero zero concern like go and get it don't hesitate like get the call just go and i think that's really the best we can do and you know that's going to impact some people and it won't impact others that's life 
Uh, Brenna, with uh, this is I've never seen a question along these lines. I don't know anything about it, so I'm intrigued. She wonders if you have any comment on prospective drug treatments. Uh, Brenna says, I know some of the recover trials have found that these highly touted drugs are ineffective against COVID with the exception of dexamethasone. Can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, I mean, there's been so much uh, discussion in the last few months around vaccine that we've kind of forgotten a little bit around some of the therapies that we actually have uh, to be able to employ against people that actually are sick with COVID-19. And there was a lot of study that was done at the beginning around all this looking at sort of therapeutic options. I think the bottom line, uh, again, without going into all the gory detail, is that, you know, there is good evidence that dexamethasone uh, does work to decrease morbidity and mortality in persons who are hospitalized requiring oxygen, um, whether you're critically ill or not, uh, or whether you're on the ward. Um, So that has pretty much become sort of a a well-recognized standard of care for COVID. Um, There are some other molecules uh, and therapies. Uh, So there's one called remdesivir. That was kind of the one, the Gilead uh, drug that was an antiviral. It's got efficacy against uh, other coronaviruses. Uh, It's been looked at against Ebola, for example. And there was a lot of excitement initially around remdesivir. There does appear to be a bit of clinical benefit. It's it's modest and it tends to, you know, decrease length of hospitalization uh, and slightly decrease, uh, you know, sort of, you know, overall sort of bad outcomes. Uh, but it's only been modestly sort of used thus far. And so not super game changer the way that we otherwise hope. There's something called tocalizumab, which is, it's an immune therapy. It helps to sort of block some of the immune response um, because a lot of the times when you're sick, uh, it, it, what actually kind of kills everything in your body is not necessarily the actual pathogen but the, uh, the body's immune response, so to speak, to sort of carpet bombing that pathogen, and then your end organs kind of get carpet bombed as a result. So some of the theory is if we try to tone down some of that immune response that you're gonna get less overall sort of sequelae in terms of uh, end organ damage and so forth. And so there is some evidence to show that tocalizumab does have some benefit in critically ill individuals, less so in uh, you know sort of people that are just on the ward who are modestly sick. Um, and there are some, you know, additional, there's lots of additional studies and trials going on right now, looking at a wide range of different therapeutic options, including like human engineered monoclonal antibodies. We're looking at literally sort of, again, infusing kind of like the Donald Trump approach where he had like a uh, uh, reverse engineered monoclonal antibody infused to try to help dampen down sort of, you know, the, uh, the, the overall sort of effect of the infection. There's nothing that's definitive at this point. And then even if something becomes definitive, the big question oftentimes, especially in a publicly funded system like ours, is access and dollars, right? And, you know, what is worth spending thousands and thousands of dollars on basically for relatively modest benefit? Those are tough questions that we obviously need to answer as well. That's a great question. Uh, We'll wrap with this from Wigwith, who says we really need an open source vaccine that we can give to the third world. Uh, so nations are not stuck with predatory loans or massive outbreaks. Is is Wigwith onto something? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was listening to uh, a keynote that uh, was presented at our big HIV meeting, which was all virtual, and uh, you know, it, it talked about this whole concept of vaccine nationalism. And you you know, we've spoken about this and, you know, when we think about it here in Canada, I I think there's been angst, for example, around the perception that Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccine and AstraZeneca vaccine 
well, less so AstraZeneca, sorry, but, uh, 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 you know, there's kind of vaccine hoarding going on, right? And uh, we know there's a large Pfizer manufacturing plant that's in Michigan, for example, and why wouldn't they share their vaccine with us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was kind of reminded, you know, when I was listening to my colleagues at this uh, virtual international meeting, one was South African, one was American, that Canada has actually been uh, one of the worst countries with respect to over-purchasing and hoarding vaccine. I mean, again, on the one hand, you don't really want to criticize the federal government for going way above and beyond in terms of securing literally like, like 100 million doses of vaccine. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of other jurisdictions, as has been mentioned, right, where... Uh, uh, where we're just basically forgetting about them. And, you know, even this kind of COVAX initiative here, which was meant to be sort of, a, again, a body that was kind of organized through the WHO to, to ensure or to help police these issues around sort of vaccine distribution and to ensure that second and third world countries would have equitable access to vaccine, even that has kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. And our AstraZeneca vaccine that we are distributing now in Canada has actually come from that COVAX initiative, right? And so there's criticism internationally around how Canada has taken, you know, hundreds of thousands of doses or, you know, one point something million doses of vaccine away from developing nations basically for ourselves. So we are, we are not innocent either in regards to all of this. And the truth of the matter is, is that, yeah, we're going to all hopefully get uh, vaccinated relatively quickly. And the first world is probably going to get vaccinated very quickly. But if we do not cover second and third world settings, variants will continue to uh, expand. You know, it's inevitable when you have, you know, a, a globally distributed virus. And so it, again, without going into all the gory detail, it is incumbent on the entire world to look after each other. And you know, and, and this is the, I think, a common theme that exists. We all need to look after one another here at home, you know, but we also need to think about the fact that there are millions, billions of people that need to be vaccinated around the world if we are really going to move forward and get out of this, as opposed to having like a never ending pandemic that just kind of flares and goes away, flares and goes away. Yeah, great points. And, and you know, we talk about taking the politics out of some of this. I mean, you imagine a federal government that procured just the amount of vaccines that it needed. It would get ripped for that. If they exactly. pro if they procure way too many, they'll get ripped for that. If they yeah. procure vaccines and then send them internationally uh, using Canadian channels to basically participate in international aid and Canadians were found to have shortages of vaccines in their neck of the woods, the federal government would get ripped for that. Uh, it's it's yeah. the, the politics is so different, I think, uh, oftentimes than the reality, which is, I mean, these, I guess what I'm saying is this is why I appreciate these conversations. Yeah, there's no question. And, you know, again, I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, we're in the prairies and again, I'm not going to speak to politics, but I, I mean, it's an easy thing to do to criticize. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, now vaccines are rolling out and it's our responsibility to make certain it gets out as quickly and aggressively as possible. But, uh, you know, time will tell. So I hope that, you know, uh, those of us in Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, those in the Prairie provinces, we don't have a significant third wave from variants. Uh, it remains to be seen.
So time will tell. Yeah, we'll let our, our viewers and listeners know that we'll uh, shortly be speaking, not today, but uh, with Canada's Minister of Public Services and Procurement, the Honorable Anita Anand, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Uh, Dr. Wong, what can I say? You stayed way longer than we asked you to. Uh, the audience has uh, fallen in love with you, and I want to encourage everybody that's listening to this podcast later or checking it out live now to give you a follow on Twitter at a Wong. 37 some great information out there on your twitter profile thanks for making time for us today i appreciate the opportunity around it was a lot of fun actually and i'll make certain that the toothbrush is no uh, that, no no that's <laughs> maybe the toothbrush maybe the toothbrush will be my thing kind of going forward i think that's here. Oh, i think man. that's your thing i like oh, it <laughs> okay, okay. all right doc all right. thanks very much that's uh, dr alexander wong he's uh, uh an infectious disease hiv and addictions physician you can see his twitter uh here at a wong 37 uh up on the screen give him a follow he actually he told me uh you know off air we were communicating before the interview he says i was actually off twitter for a really long time he says but i he's he's kicked it again uh kick-started his account um and he's back on and active he says because of the outbreaks that they're seeing in regina and he wants to make sure that he's part of that important public messaging. So our thanks to him. Uh, and as mentioned, staying way into overtime. We appreciate that. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. They've been doing it for 25 years, going up against the big multinational garbage companies. The one that, you know, you call a 1-800 number and then maybe after you sit and wait for 40 minutes, somebody might take your call. And even if so... They don't know where they are. They don't know your hood. They don't know what you're talking about, what your concerns are. They're locally owned and operated at Local Waste. And if you check out localwaste.ca, you'll be able to learn more about what they can do for your business, big or small. Local Waste also proud supporters of Trash Talk here on Real Talk every Friday as we wrap up our broadcast week. You can send your rants, your raves, your gripes, your swipes to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge has not just the best selection of the 2021 Jeep lineup. I talk to you about that all the time, but same goes with Dodge Rams. In fact, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have the best selection of the Dodge Ram 1500 pickup, best in class, award-winning pickup at both of their locations. Scott and his team would love to see you and earn your business. They've got some great financing options, including 0% for those who qualify. You can call the dealership for more details on that. The team at Friesen Brothers is thrilled to be wide open in South Edmonton. It's their 15th Alberta location, and real talkers are going nuts, Sam. We're getting notes from real talkers raving about the cinnamon buns, the smoked beef short rib, the pizza oven. I'm not trying to torture you right now. Yeah, you are. <laughs> the smash burgers, the Alberta honey station, the root cellar, the baker's pantry. I mean, I could go on for hours. You got to see it for yourself. Friesen Brothers is proudly Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also wanted to give a shout out to the team at Clean Air Club. This is an easy way that you can breathe easy and save money. Do yourself a favor. Check out cleanairclub.ca. You sign up. You let them know the size of the furnace filter that you need. Very easy to read right there on the side of the filter. It's the, you know, the piece of cardboard that pulls out. Next thing you know, they've dropped the filters off at your doorstep. You pay less than you would in the store and you breathe easier. Plus a special gift as they support local at Clean Air Club. In just a moment, we're going to talk to Daniel Bartholomew Poiser. I'm very excited for this conversation. He's the subject of a documentary, Disruptor Conductor, that's got a lot of people talking, and Daniel's got a wonderful, inspirational story. We're also grateful for the messages, the notes, the emails that you send us. 
every day. We get dozens and dozens of them. Some days we get hundreds and we sift through them to make sure that we communicate to you how much we appreciate you investing in our program. Okay, Sam, hang on. What's the deal? This is unplanned. This is news to me. And I absolutely love where you're taking this right now. What's going on, Samuel Brooks? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's St. Patrick's Day. I was just uh, covertly pouring myself a green <laughs> beer over here. That's okay, all. Well, hang on a second. Uh, I brought one for you. Don't worry. I was going to say, I was going to say, I, I think if you're pouring green beer, I, I think it's against the rules to pour just one. Yeah, I, I brought two. Don't worry. I prepared for those. Can I say and, and can can we say who whose beer you're pouring right now? You obviously have used food coloring, I think, because I, I've never seen green beer from Arcadia Brewery. Brewing Co., but I don't think you can just buy cans of green beer. I'd be concerned. I will, I will recommend the Coliseum Blonde Ale there you as are. a very great base for your St. Patrick's Day green beer. Can I tell you something? Uh, where I'm having this conversation with Dr. Alex Wong, who's doing a great job, and I'm looking up to the monitor, which is just above Sam at our uh, technical producer's station, and I see a report of a, a journalist, a, a TV reporter, a live reporter at a bar and my heart stopped he's surrounded by people they're celebrating buddy's spilling beer over his shoulder they're laughing they're singing everybody's got their green scarves on i'm going this was archive footage i'm going what the hell is going on and i'm trying to talk to dr wong and he's talking about variants and spread and trying to flatten the and i'm watching and i'm going this is on the national newscast right and then it says file footage 2016 i went oh thank god i was i had a heart attack i was i'm going they're gonna get ten thousand emails right now how does that green beer taste oh it's quite delicious i I like that you waited till 10 o'clock was that on principle sam it was a little bit i mean you know we came into the gate and i i think it was less on principle and more on subject matter of like you know we came in with a discussion about investments in alberta and it was 8 30 in the morning and and you know i'm not camping so i'm not going to pour a beer at 8 30 in the morning at least not today um talking about alberta's economy nobody would blame you for pouring a beer at that's eight in the morning. very true and and that discussion made me want to pour, pour a beer at a couple of points and uh you know then we were getting into vaccines and diseases and infectious diseases specialists and i felt like i had to be on my best behavior so now we've reached that part of the show where you're going to indulge in some emails we're going to chat with the people here we're going to tee up our next guest and and i can get the saint patrick's day celebration Operations uh, ready to go. All right. Well, I'm grateful for it. Um, let me know when Daniel's ready to go because I want to. I want to get into some of these emails as well. I'm so grateful you brought green beer. As I told, I told you, I was. I've been making the healthy choice today, um, and I've been drinking my St. Patrick's Day green smoothie. Uh, now combining it with a green beer, it feels like I'm bringing balance into my life. Yeah. See, when I saw you come in with that smoothie, I was just like, oh, geez, is he going to want the green beer? Mm-hmm. The answer is always yes. Uh, William wrote in yesterday to talk at RyanJesperson.com. He says, uh, Jespo, the war room is a perfect example of what governments are terrible at. This room should be headed up by industry, uh, steered by a top PR firm, facilitated by government. He says this will continue. (laughs) Thank you, my man. He says this will continue to be a disaster if led by government. That from Bill. Uh, which is interesting because Bill's Bill's uh, email is concise and short. Uh, email is more likely to be read, by the way, if they're concise and short. And Bill says that it'll be continue to be a disaster if led by government. Here's the thing: the government wants you to believe it's not being led by government, right? They want you to they want you to believe it's it's been it's been set up as a a private corporation. It's um it it's uh its expenditures, its strategy is undisclosed. 
Um, they would say the government has nothing to do with this except for the fact that three government ministers are directors of the company and there's public funds going into the company with no disclosure about where they're going. Um, I do agree with you, Bill, that it is a disaster. I also think that the war room should be headed up by industry and paid for by industry. Um, I understand that there uh, are benefits, obviously, to Alberta's bottom line if the oil and gas industry succeeds. But with the way that we see the Canadian Energy Center spending its money, I'm sure a lot of people would, would, would believe that there are better ways to get bang for buck when it comes to public dollars. I also wanted to read this one from Jerry. Uh, Jerry uh, touches on our conversation last week, says uh, the subject line, there's no apparent lack of conservative voices on Ontario's university campus, uh, campuses. Jerry says, hey, to Ryan, Sam and the Real Talk fam. Sam and the Real Talk fam sounds like some sort of a 70s, like a hippie band. Sam, I'd, play, I'd play in Sam and the Real Talk fam. That you'd like have, to, you'd to, have to be Sam the Tambourine Man and the Real Talk fam. There we go. He says, uh, I'm just reading an article from Global News uh, titled MPP Sam Oosterhoff. You guys know this guy affiliates himself with a group that compares abortion to the Holocaust. Jerry says, I'm familiar with this politician through other headline grabbing media reports like Sam calls police to remove protesting senior citizens to say he's not my favorite person would be an understatement. He's a militant anti-choice voice who believes that same-sex marriage should be illegal. But early in the article, I immediately made a connection with last week's Real Talk panel, which unpacked an alleged bias on Canadian universities. This passage from the report, says Jerry, well, this is the, the one that really popped up and, and, and kind of spit in the face of Dr. Chris Dummett's assertion that conservatives on university campuses are muzzled. This from a news report, quote, the event is being organized by student-led university groups, including University of Ottawa Students for Life, the Carleton Life Network, and the University of Waterloo Students for Life, which is being held in collaboration with the National Campus Life Network, which is an anti-abortion youth group, end quote. Jerry says it, it may be oversimplifying, uh, trying to draw a straight line from groups who attack women's reproductive rights, you know, to the fact that they maybe don't typically fill up seats in empathetic or rather university humanities programs, empathic university humanities programs. But this seems fitting. Jerry says the real question is, why do Canadian conservative political parties insist on including and even protecting social conservatives? Jerry, it's votes. He says, why not foster the natural progression of social conservatives into their own party? There are many grumblings that Aaron O'Toole will face real policy issues with abortion at the upcoming federal conservative convention. They're playing a very dangerous game. We have to just look to the South and the Republican Party to examine this experiment in real time. Abortion and same sex marriage attacks seem to parallel quieter, deeper, insidious beliefs susceptible to QAnon, Holocaust denial, and overall violence against the other, be it physical, psychological, emotional, economic, or other. The headline here, combined with the actions of students at multiple universities, makes me hope that Dr. Dummett is right. Be kind to one another. That from Jerry. I appreciate that, Jerry. 
The team at Westworld Computers has been in the game family-owned for more than 40 years. If you're looking to type up an email to Real Talk, but your laptop just conked out, or it's just plain lousy, you just saw it in a photo from 10 years ago and you just realized how long you've had this thing, that workhorse that has showed up for you every day, but it's time to replace it. The team at Westworld understands working with budgets and they've got the brand new lineup from Apple. They're ready to go. MacBook Pro, iMac, whatever you need. Maybe one of these iPads that I'm using here. But they also know that maybe a gently pre-owned unit with the software reinstalled and a and a warranty reapplied might be a better bet. Go see Daryl and his team at Westworld Computers, proudly family-owned. The team at Park Power, of course, you know they power our Real Talk RJ hashtag. We've been monitoring that today. What's really neat today, Sam, I've noticed, is that the hashtag is really still buzzing from our conversations yesterday. Yeah. Our conversations about Catholicism in the LGBTQ2S plus community, which is awesome. Of course, we know later this afternoon when people start checking out the podcast from today. I mean, that's the interesting insight of the hashtags. It kind of reflects where people are at in their day listening to so the show. So cool. Yeah, I it's, love it. It's actually, it's really interesting. It's I great insight it. for us. Park Power has been operating the province of Alberta for about eight years now, and they've made a commitment, a significant commitment to give back. So when you invest in Park Power by giving them your business, electricity, internet, natural gas, you know that 10% of their profits are going back into non-profits. Plus, they want to save you 70 bucks on your first bill. Just use the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. Our next guest is a celebrated orchestral conductor. Uh, He's worked across Canada really doing remarkable work, and I'm excited to have an opportunity to welcome him to the show. Daniel Bartholomew Poyser is one of the first openly gay black conductors in Canada, the child of a working class Caribbean single mom. He was raised in Calgary, Alberta. He understands what it is to be an other He's gained a lot of attention working alongside RuPaul's drag race star Thorgy Thor, creating the first orchestral drag queen show in Canada. He is the subject of a celebrated CBC documentary, and I'm thrilled to have him here because Daniel and I also grew up together. And I'm so excited to see your face again. Did you did you wonder if maybe I was going to keep that a secret? I wasn't sure where you were going to take it, but I was hoping. I was hoping. Oh, it's been a long time since camp, right? Oh, oh my gosh. My Back gosh. in the day. You still, you still talk the same way, which is a smile smeared across your face. And I know that my face is going to hurt from smiling as we reconnect. I am so proud of you. How are oh. you? I'm doing I'm doing well as well as I think anybody is in COVID time, Ryan. It's um it's been a challenging time for a lot of people, but I'm doing I'm doing well, and it's really really great to to see you again. I think it's been I think it's been decades. It, it has literally been decades, um, and it and it's been really neat to follow your career, Daniel. And and you've you've worked across Canada. The film Disruptor Conductor. I encourage people to check it out. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, your journey though ha- has not been an easy one. I mean, your connection to music or the role that music has played in your life was was rooted in some really existential questions that you were asking yourself that I didn't know you were asking yourself uh, when we were young men. Can, can you explain? Yeah. And I always wondered, why didn't Ryan ask, you know, but so now, no, <laughs> I, I really, um, I, 
Yeah, music was very, very important to me uh, as a kid growing up in the Disruptor Conductor documentary, available on CBC Gem now. Um, <laughs> but it, it is available on CBC Gem. Um, <laughs> in, in, that, in that documentary, <laughs> in that documentary, you know, there's a story of uh, growing up with a mom and an aunt being raised by my mom and my aunt and my aunt. Um, died unfortunately of lung cancer when I was 13 years old and then me turning to music and I didn't know that you know that it was nerdy and geeky to listen to Mozart's Requiem as a 13 year old <laughs> which kind of shows how nerdy and geeky I was maybe um, so I turned to that and that started you know when it was one of the things that started my love of music right so music was always there orchestral music was always there interestingly enough you know I grew up in Alberta and um, people often ask well, what was that like growing up in Alberta as, you know, as a black person. And, you know, my white music teachers were the ones that gave me tons and tons of encouragement about it. So I never felt like, oh, being an orchestral conductor is something that I can't do because I'm black. Ne never, never ever did that, that, that occur to me. And I'm very grateful for having grown up um, in, in Calgary. Just say it. I had, I had a good, there, there were problems, of course, but um, I did have a good experience as far as, um, being a young black person in orchestral music. Yeah. We, uh, I mean, we, we look back on our childhood and there are kind of these, these like formative moments, right. Or the connections that, that we make with people or these experiences that we have. Was there one moment for you where you saw music, um, you, you know, as, as something that might be a ticket to somewhere. Was there a moment where you said, I think this is where my life may really launch here in, in a professional capacity. Hmm. I mean, being a professional musician is sometimes it's a ticket to anxiety, maybe um, not riches <laughs> for sure. Um, but it's, you know, it's like and, and all jokes aside. I knew that um, being a professional musician was something that I wanted to be. I think probably when I was in, in high school, grade 11, grade 12. Um, I don't know that there was a moment, Ryan, but it was just day after day and week after week of spending my time in the, in, in the music room at lunchtime, playing instruments, learning different instruments by myself. I just knew that that was where I wanted to be. It was where I felt comfortable. If there was an aha moment, it's that first day in university when I got to uh, University of Calgary, uh, bottom of the basement with Alan Bell, theory class, first period, and on the wall was just music staves lining the wall, and I just felt like, oh, I'm in the right place. This is the right place for me. So yes, what, is, journey. what is it about music for you? Mm. Um, I think music for me, it's about, so one of the, one of the joys of Western art music um, is that it's really capable of, as opposed to, you know, reggae, African traditions, um, Chinese traditions, one of the things that's special about Western art music is um, its ability to inflect different degrees of emotion through harmony. So, you know, when you're happy, you're never just totally happy. You're happy, but maybe there's a little anxiety about a paycheck coming up and also a little bit of sadness about this, but you're generally happy. And there's like these different inflections of emotion. Through harmony, that's what composers like Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and, uh, and others, that's what they're really able to communicate really well. Um, and that's what I love about Western art music, right? What I love about, you know, Caribbean traditions is the rhythm and the drive and the way that they use songs to um, talk about politics in a fun way. Um, and to, to, yeah, and, and like driving back and forth. But Western art music, I think, has uh, this notion of harmony um, that is that was unique and that really, that really got to my heart. Hmm. You've, uh, you've been so clear 
um, and you're living it, uh, your commitment to use your musical power for good, um, you know, an in disruptor conductor available on CBC Jam and people can find it anywhere. Um, we, we see you. We see you. You're on this mission and you tell, oh, oh, buddy, I'm going to pump your tires for like half an hour. So buckle up and get ready for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Daniel, you, you, you know, you're, you're talking about breaking down these institutional walls and using music and to bring live orchestral music uh, to people of color, to young people, millennials, to to the LGBTQ community, to prisoners, to refugees. Um, I mean, this, what is it like? Let me ask it plainly. What's it like for you to look out and to see young people of color watching you conduct an orchestra? What does that do to you? Yeah, it makes me feel really, um, okay, that's only something that's really come into my consciousness in the past couple of years, how important that is. Um, it, so to answer your question, it makes me feel really, really good. It makes me feel like maybe I'm doing something good. That's what it makes me feel like. Why? Um, a couple of years ago, well, many years ago, when Black Panther came out, um, I went to see Black Panther. I love uh, hero movies, uh, superhero movies. I always love that sort of stuff for that. And I thought, okay, Black Panther, Black superhero, fantastic, good. Uh, I like it the same as the others, blah, blah, blah. Ryan, at the end of that movie, I felt like a million bucks. I felt so good. And if you'd asked me before the movie, Daniel, how will you feel the end seeing a black superhero? I would have been like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be good. I love, you know, hopefully he has good superpowers, nice special effects. I felt like a king at the end of that movie. And I realized that's the power of representation. And I thought, wow, what might it have been for, been like for me if growing up as a little kid in Silver Springs, I saw other black kids doing the things that I wanted to do? Right. If I saw other black kids as orchestral musicians, it would have been different. I still had tons of encouragements. So I was very lucky. So now I realize that maybe what I felt at the end of that movie. I mean, I'm not Black Panther. I don't have the I don't have super uh, super powers. But um, maybe some young person in the audience looks up there and says, um, "Oh, okay, there's a black conductor," and they don't even go, "Oh my gosh, maybe I can be a black conductor too, or a Syrian conductor. I can have a hijab and be in professional music." No, it just becomes part of what is normal. It's just, yeah, oh, there are black conductors. I love the fact that um, for a lot of young people, the first time they see a professional conductor, they see somebody who's black. I'd be happy if it wasn't me as well, right? Um, but that makes me feel like maybe I'm doing something that's, that's good for, the, for those young people. And it is really important. It is really important because sometimes you don't know, you know, it just, it just helps people to see that there are possibilities for themselves, you know? Kim's so watching uh, Kim's watching live on YouTube right now. She says, this guest has already filled my bucket. She says, I have a CBC gem premium account and I am queuing this up. Um, how about this? This is this is kind of oh, and by the way, Mike Patton, who does a great job, Mike, uh, at the uh, at the Windspear Center. Um, and I would imagine maybe were you at the were you at the Jubilee uh, in Edmonton with the symphony or were you at the Windspear? Yes. Was it yes. The, at the Ju yes that, that must mean that must be. OK, let me get Mike's comment out first. He says we had so much fun working with these guys at the Edmonton Symphony with the team. Super fun gig. What's it like for you to come back to Alberta? You're, you're this. I mean, come on, man. You're a big shot. You're conducting orchestras all across Canada. You're traveling around the world. Is it is it pretty special coming back home? Do you have mixed feelings coming back home? Hello, Calgary. You <laughs> Hello, should see Calgary. us now. We got your eyes, Calgary. Touching the skies, Calgary. We got the shows you're looking forward to. Yeah. Seven's got a whole lot more. Okay. So. <laughs> 
don't feel bad that that's the corporation that just fired me, Dan. I won't hold it against you. It is, it is, it is still a great tune. It is a great tune. You know, Ryan makes no difference where I go. It's still the best hometown I know. <laughs> no, I love. I no, it's not problematic at all. I love Calgary. I miss Calgary. Uh, funnily enough, I know there's like. I mean. We take it for granted that the um, that the Flames are better than the Oilers. That's just like religion for me because I'm from Calgary. But Edmonton is the place where I was a member of Royal Canadian Air Cadets, and I did my pilot's training in Air Cadets in, in Edmonton at the Edmonton Municipal Airport. So uh, Edmonton was always a place as a Calgarian that when there was uh, Alberta Honor Band, we would go to Edmonton. Air Cadet things were held in Edmonton. So so many of the best memories of my life, of my youth growing up, happened in Edmonton, right? Um, Calgary is home. Calgary is home. I miss the mountains all the time. I miss the hills. I miss the Bow Valley. Um, that's where I grew up. I'm an, I feel like an Albertan. I've been in Ontario for the past eight years. I often do feel like an Albertan in Ontario. Um, it's very, and I love, you know, Ontario's great. Um, I love, I love the land that, that I grew up on, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> so close to the Sutina. Right? Yeah. I think about I think about Alberta. I think about I think about um I think about it a lot. So it wasn't problematic. I will say that one of the best shows that we did with Thorgy, and, and probably from my perspective because I'm from Calgary, was when I was able to come back and bring Thorgy to the Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra. That was the orchestra that I grew up always wanting to conduct because those were my heroes, those were my teachers. So to be able to come back and also when I lived in Calgary, I was not out. Right, so to come back with this orchestral concert, and interestingly enough, in um, conservative Calgary, to have many of my friends who are still part of conservative communities come to that concert yeah. to yeah. support me, even though, right, and to get because I know you're talking about politics and stuff like that, it was a real it was a real shock to me. It had me in tears, and uh, just to see that people were able to say, okay, we're still from the. I grew up in a very strong church community. Uh, so many of those people came to see me in a drag concert and to show that love, which I think is a marked difference from some of the discussions that we have in North America right now regarding how do we even talk to people on the other side of things. Yeah. Right? So that for me was really, really, really significant. Um, the ability of my people in Calgary to um, support, and I don't even, you know, we're not even getting into details of like, oh, we think this about gay, blah, 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 or whatever. Um, but just to feel that support in the midst of questions and to have the ability to have discussions, um, which was evidenced by their being there physically. That was really huge. That was huge for me. And we both come from the same place, right? So um, that was an instance of putting out a musical offering into a community and seeing what would happen. And it was well received. And I think there was a, a measure of healing that happened in a sense, not just for me personally, but also when you take a space, an institutional space such as a concert hall and you queer it in a sense by making it available open to people who've had a different life journey. That's a very special thing. And that's the power of that concert, yeah. which I think is bigger than myself or Thorgy. Did you say you queer it like as a verb? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, I have so many questions for you. Some of them, I don't even know if they're fair to ask you. We had, we go had, for it. go for it. Yeah. Well, we had, I had a conversation, two conversations. As a matter of fact, yesterday, it was kind of the theme of our show after the Vatican uh, released a statement on Monday saying that it, it cannot bless 
uh, gay unions, uh, calling them sinful. We talked to Reverend Michael Corrin, uh, a recovering Catholic who's now an Anglican cleric. And then we talked to Jamie Manson. Um, Jamie Manson is she's the president of Catholics for Choice, but she was uh, one of the first, one of the only openly uh, LGBTQ um, religious columnists when she wrote for the Catholic Reporter for many years. And, And I'll tell you, that interview yesterday might honestly be one of the most meaningful conversations I think I've had in a 20 year career. I mean, it was just a wonderful conversation, but there's a lot of serious questions. And I divulged to her that I just did a magazine interview that's not out yet um, where they asked me deep questions about my faith and, and, and religion growing up and whether or not I'm religious now, whether or not now I believe in God. Um, and, and these are big, right? Right. Um, I said, I said, I felt like the cock was going to crow three times after I was asked the question Then I got a great email from a guy named Bill who said, your Christian education failed you. He says, you got to deny three times and then the cock crows once. And so I I said, okay, well, there you go. I haven't spent much time in the church. So the stories are getting a little hazy. Um, But, but your journey, Dan, because you bring it up and you just, you just said, you know, I mean, you and I went to Bible camp together every summer and, and you talked about your faith and you talked about growing up in conservative Calgary in religious circles. Uh, now you're out um, as a proud gay man. You're doing incredible work with uh, RuPaul's, uh, you know, celebrity uh, collaborator, Thorgy Thor. You've done this amazing uh, production. You're being featured in film. Um, your faith walk uh, along those lines. Ha- have some things fallen by the wayside? Do you, do you still consider yourself to be a man of faith? Have you been able to reconcile that as an out gay man? Where are you at with that? Oh, okay. Here you, we go. Hey, you said ask anything. You said ask anything. People are asking no, me. Great. I'm going to ask you, brother. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, great question, right? Where is the faith at? So, it's funny how you said the stories are getting a little bit hazy, mm-hmm. right? Um, the stories are getting a little hazy, but the stories are still operative, right? Mm. So, I think that for me, and I hope that for me, when I'm doing... Um, I guess I've gone from a propositional faith to hopefully an active faith. And by which I mean, if you ask me what I believe, like propositionally, the answers are not going to get, they're not going to check off evangelical boxes by any means. Right. But I hope that when people look at, well, not not even people, forget that. Like who cares? Right. Uh, Because I'm working for the audience of one capital O. But when Big Other or God looks at my life, they will see that I'm still, those stories and the values are still very much operative, right? Um, To put it in a terrible cliche, like you can take the boy out of church, but you can't take the church out of the boy. Mm. And that's very, very, very much the case, right? So while at the same time I um, have a physical reaction to going into churches yeah. of certain events, a physical reaction. And there are certain churches where when I see the all are welcome sign on the outside, my initial reaction is scorn and contempt, which is something I need to work on, right? Um, at the same time, there is inside of me an ongoing conversation with God. I, I like to, yeah, with God, there, that conversation is ongoing. Um, the biblical stories are still fairly active and some, sometimes it's really funny, Ryan, cause you know, in church, right? Like it's not, it, it gets more than it's cracked up to be. And I kind of get, I get frustrated, uh, sometimes with liberal 
impatience and um, contempt of conservative viewpoints and, and, and conservative people and religious views because um, it can be incredibly condescending and that's because of my of, of where I grew up right but I look at the way that we are treating each other and talking to each other and it makes me glad that I grew up the way that I did hmm. because I see things from the other side yeah right so if you ask me you know where's my um, where's my faith at today do I still have faith in some like ultimate bigger meaning yeah it's not cashed out in the same chips or the same terms um, that I would have when I was 16, 17, 18, 20, 30. I have a lot more questions now than I did before. Do I still believe there is, you know, do I still believe in God? Yes, absolutely. But the terms of relationship have changed. And I gotta tell you, um, reading that pronouncement the other day that you, that you referenced in the article, you know, pretty discouraging. I didn't really expect much less. Um, it is kind of like a punch to the gut, but then you remember, oh yeah, I mean, I need to be careful. Um, yeah, it was. It's pretty. It's it's pretty discouraging. And I guess my reaction was this. Now, this is what you need to say now at this point. Wow, um, yeah. we need to switch the conversation to the problem of gays to the problems of gays. And I say gays because it's the problem of the LGBTQ. How do we fit them into doctrine? What do we do about this? Da, 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 to the problems that these people are actually experiencing in their real lives, right? And that was one of my frustrations with um, one of my frustrations with. Um, with church things was that there was, it was always a problem apart from just not being accepted. It was always a problem. What do we do? Let's have another session. Let's have another meeting about it. No, I just can do it. So, so that's, if that's a foggy answer, that's because it's, it is, it's it is not, foggy. it's not a foggy answer at all. That's an incredible answer. And, and I know that, you know, your publicists right now are going to go, they're asking him about the Pope's, the Vatican's proclamation there. What does that have to do with, what does that have to do with disruptor conductor? And the answer is nothing. Right. It's just that you're a thoughtful, uh, loving man. And I just, they, I know that I wouldn't ask that question to somebody that I didn't think could handle it. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's funny though, because on the one hand, what does the Vatican's proclamation have to do with it? Um, nothing. On the other hand, everything. Yeah. Because all the young people that were at that Thorgy Thor concert who are going home with suicidal ideation who feel like there's no place for them in their church will know that they can come to my Thorgy Thor concert and there will be a place for them. And whether they are asexual or queer or LGBTQ or whatever or trans or two-spirit, that they can sit there and be okay. And maybe that'll be the only two and a half hours in their six months where they feel like they're accepted where they're sitting down. Because maybe they won't find it at their school. And maybe they won't find it in their family. Family. But at least, the least I can do with my life of 70 years, God bless how many, how many of I have, is provide that space for other people that I didn't have when I was growing up. So maybe it is all connected. Yeah. Real talkers. And I was, told, I was told by somebody once to visit the prisoners, right? I was told by somebody to visit the prisoners. Somebody capital S. Huh. In a book, right? Huh. So it all kind of does make sense if you read it. And there are, so that's when I say it's like operational, you know, don't ask me. So I didn't want to talk about, oh, what do you believe? What do you think? Da, 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 da. You know what? Just like, look at what I'm doing. And if that doesn't tell you enough, forget about it. And that's an evangelical value, right? Not what I say, but what I do. So there you go. That's all I have to say. People can see why I love you. People <laughs> Ryan, you got me. <laughs> hey, buddy. Dan, there's a reason yeah, I'm why. I'm preaching here today. <laughs> Preach. Preach. You know, I think we could use, we could use more sermons along these lines. There's a reason why we called the show Real Talk. And I think. That the people watching live, I'm just waiting. The, what just happened? <laughs> My phone dropped and then the computer shifted. There's like a whole setup here that you can't see. It looked Everything's like it, the camera angle kind of wavered for a moment there. But but yeah, if yeah, anything, yeah. an orchestral Perfect. conductor, you got to figure out what to do if somebody 
you know, drops their piccolo, right? Or their or their viola. Um, you, I, I just keep, just keep going. People, uh, Lola Zaz is watching right now, says, I always assumed orchestral conductors would be really stuffy people. My misconception has been blown away. Uh, <laughs> let, let me ask you this. I mean, you have right now obviously faced so many challenges um as has uh, has a society over the last year i was t- i was telling sam and our audience that that today one year ago today was the first talk radio show that i did outside of our studio it was, it's been the one year mark um tracy says the trickle down effect of school music programs being shut down because of covid19 will eventually reach to the professional level uh, Tracy says the McEwen University music program is is suffering this year. Uh, m- many are saying uh, many are touching on that, on the impact of covid. Uh, if 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 uh, no other. I mean, here, you know, music ed programs are seriously suffering. My band teacher husband has not taught music for the past year. He's concerned his program may completely die. A ton of people are saying how much they miss hearing the, the Calgary or Edmonton Philharmonic orchestras. Obviously, you've conducted across Canada. Um, the impact of COVID-19 or this pandemic on your career has been what? Uh, it's shifted from music to public speaking, sort of, yeah. of which this is the part. It's like doing a lot of talks, um, figuring out triage plans, a lot of it is online offerings. So, for example, um, you know, if you're concerned about youth and, and music and what's going to be happening with, with, you know, the Calgary Philharmonic, different orchestras, go to their website. They have fantastic, and this is Calgary and Edmonton, and I'm sure Red Deer Symphony as well, too. All orchestras right now have fantastic offerings for young people to keep them engaged. We have been up like late nights for the entire pandemic, figuring out how can we remain engaging to people and we've come up with new ways to remain engaged with our audience to connect to encourage young people to stay with music and these things are not going away so yes i agree with the viewer that we are going to see um that we are going to see a blip in terms of participation in music impacting the professional world later on but we're also going to see that those who decide to join music will be supported by all of these different resources and different ways that orchestras are choosing to engage in small ways. For example, classroom concerts, uh, one-on-one meetings with musicians through Zooms, adopting musicians in different ways, having small ensembles going out to musicians, um, playing along with orchestral musicians online. There's now more support. So yes, there's a void, but in that void we have put, I guess, musical fertilizer. That's a terrible analogy, but you got, you got kind of like things to help and support and nurture so that when all of you, dear viewers, we come out of COVID and you're encouraging the young people in your lives and those you know in music to stick with it, there will be more support there for them. So in this space of emptiness, we have tried to come around the young people with support, with added encouragement, with real resources. And that is our plan moving forward to continue with these resources, keep things going nicely. Um, so when people come back, they will be supported and be able to continue their careers. I'm uh, I'm I'm just I'm watching the the B-roll that Sam is rolling for us from the dock from Disruptor Conductor. And I'm just I, I, I know I've said it already so many times, but I want to say because we've known each other since since our ages were in single digits. I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I have faked 
being an orchestral conductor many times. Uh, anytime I've had access to a decent stereo system, uh, classical music, I put myself between the two speakers like the audiologists say you're not supposed to do. And I can right. and I conduct and I and I tap the I tap the strings on the shoulder yes. and, and I acknowledge the timpani. And I, yes. I mean, it's just what's it like? Are you channeling something when you're there? Like what happens to you um, emotionally and physically and even spiritually? when you when you when you are conducting an orchestra what happens okay so there's two parts to that the one is the practical and the one is the emotional if you were to talk to an air canada triple seven pilot or 787 pilot or west a west jet pilot landing the 787 there are 50 meters off the ground it's windy in edmonton you go to them and say so like, what are you feeling right now you're piloting this incredible machine with like 200,000 pounds of thrust they're just doing the job there's a, okay, don't bu- don't bother me right now because I'm I'm thinking okay thirty you know flare do all this stuff and just back Th- there's a job that you're doing while you're actually doing it so in a sense you're not thinking about um, the grandiosity of the experience but the experience of doing that job is just as much fun and just as much um, thrill as you would imagine it would be and here's why with a professional orchestra. You know, Mozart's going along, um, bum, 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 And you can look over at the violas and raise your eyebrow and something changes. Yeah. The sound changes. And that is what is crazy. Um, as you become, like, like, as you become more of an expert at different things, the, the, the joy of expertise is control. So experts have more control over things than non-experts, right? So these musicians have an incredible amount of control over their instruments. So if I go to a musician, if I, if I do this, boom, as opposed to this, that's going to change the sound. And then because it's sort of like a hive mind, to use another weird term, um, that change of sound between this and this changes how everybody's feeling about the piece in real time. And it's so intimate because it's all nonverbal communication. It's all eyes, it's all body language, all movement. And sometimes I'm leading, just listening. And then, oh, the oboist is doing something here. You might just point out. And everybody, the whole group goes to that, goes to that person. So if you've ever seen, um, not a swarm of birds, a mur- is it a murmuration of swallows? Or murmuration oh, of those, yeah. yeah, those are That's what it starlings, like. isn't it? Starlings, thank you. Yeah. My friend Jordan Powell in Toronto wrote a fantastic piece called, um, called yeah, yeah, it's Starling, I believe, uh, about, about those birds. That's what an orchestra is, except with humans, right? So these saw these birds moving all together. That's what an orchestra is. That's what's so special about. That's what's so special about it. When you're inside of that, it feels incredible. And when you're in the audience, seeing that and feeling it, it's different to hearing it on your computer speakers. No matter how if you hear, you know, Bang and Olufsen speakers, they're great. It's not the same as being in the actual room oh, with yeah. other humans experiencing that. And now to get a little bit of Brene Brown, right? This is why we need these orchestral experiences. Over the past year, we've been deprived of being together as people, right? And one of the things that we love as human beings is moments of communal celebration and moments of communal grief. We have funerals, we have football for celebration or grief, depending on our team. Um, same thing with orchestral music, except now over the course of you know an hour and a half or two hours, you as an entire group of 530, 30 people, 500, 1,000, through the music, you're experiencing these moments of elation and sadness and disappointment and reaching all of these things together. 
And that is a restorative experience. And that's what we've been missing over COVID. People who have been, you know, you know, dying alone in beds, um, not able to see their family for weeks. Uh, school children who are 13 through, you know, university, unable to hang out and have all those experiences. Oh, it's so painful. We need these experiences. So I encourage those of you who are, you've been deprived over the past, and this is totally, I'm selling tickets now. Go buy some tickets for your neighborhood symphony or theater or anything, but rejoin, like let's rejoin each other. Um, it's time for us to be together again soon, I think. Soon. I can't I can't wait until you bring your talent to Edmonton in whatever capacity it is, uh, if for no other reason that we need to get you here in this studio in person. Uh, oh, I, if, if nothing I mean, else, I just want to hug you and, and just no. slap you on the back and, and cheer for you. But your your enthusiasm is contagious. Um, and it uh, maybe I shouldn't say that in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, let, let, <laughs> let me let me let me find some other. Let me ask you for a prescription. Um, give us one piece of music to, to, to take in today. One piece of music to listen to. Oh, certainly Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. OK. Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, because I'm thinking of conducting this next year, so I've been listening to it quite a lot. Um, it's, if you're not familiar with classical music, it's a great place to start. It's fun. It's beautiful. There are wonderful melodies. It just sounds great. It's sort of like, I don't know, it's an, it, it's an easy drinking wine. I was having some easy drinking wine last night, so it comes to my head. But um, it's four movements. It's beautiful. It's fun. Uh, there's drama. There's pathos. And I think I think for those of you who are not used to listening to orchestral music, it's a great starter symphony. It's a great place to start. So Dvorak, D-V-O-R-A-K, Eighth Symphony. The Ninth Symphony, after that is all, everybody, you probably already heard the Ninth Symphony, but you don't really have heard it. But I love Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. Uh, what else would be really great? If you really want to knock your socks off, there's uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is always a great piece. It, because as we come into spring, the Rite of Spring, this is a piece that started riots. Um, if you are feeling kind of down or just kind of like heavy and you want something that will slowly take you to a different space, I would recommend Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht. Here we go. V-E-R-K-L-A-R-T-E and then Nacht, Nacht, N-A-C-H-T, Verklärte Nacht. I'm sure you'll have links for this. Uh, starts out very slow and somber, and then by the end, it's just like, it slowly makes you feel, it slowly makes you feel better. And then there's always Sufjan Stevens, <laughs> who's not classical orchestral, but I just love his stuff. So we're going to put in a plug for Sufjan Stevens. I love it. Just- uh, Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, uh aside from being an absolute rock star and a dear friend of mine is the subject of the CBC iron Bay media documentary disruptor conductor, which captures what has been at least to this point, uh, the biggest year of Daniel's life Four concerts that included playing in a women's prison, conducting an Afro fusion concert with an artist from the blockbuster film, black Panther, uh, putting on the first orchestral drag show ever with RuPaul's drag race, celebrity contestant, Thor G Thor and creating in Canada. A, in Canada and creating a concert for people on the autism spectrum. I love you, and it's amazing to see you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you're right. So good. All right, take care. There you go. You can check out what Daniel does uh, by visiting his website, danielbartholomewpoiser.com. Wow. Understatement. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> I, like, his... 
everything about him is infectious. Like right? it just the the abject. Like sorry, you asked him. Give us a prescription of a classical piece that we can listen to, and and. Just the nerdy deep dive he takes into these symphonies just had me lighting up. And, yeah. and like, I like also just badly misplaying an instrument right now, like just sort of hearing the way that it, it comes off and it's contagious. His stories about spending, you know, lunch hours in the band room in high school, like that was my high school experience. That's that how right? I became, yeah, we would hang out in the band room on our spare time. So it's, um, it, it just, yeah, I, I'm, I have a giant smile on my Me face. Me too. After I'm that just like interview. scribbling notes, and I oh, and, and yeah. that was that was a completely selfish exercise. Me asking, give us something to listen to today, uh, like, uh, and then we ask him to prescribe it, and then you see his mind kind of go to work, and he's talking about what he's thinking of conducting next year and why and what he loves about it. And it's not the most. I mean, it's great. You know, people watching uh, right now, leaving their comments. This this is great. The watcher says, I know it's cliche, but I love Beethoven. <laughs> That's not cliche. It's it's great. Uh, Troy says Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. Two is my favorite very accessible for newbies um you know <laughs> crazy james flight of the bumblebee while gonzo eats a rubber tire is also great <laughs> <laughs> well done <laughs> uh jacqueline points out that you can get your tickets right now to vivaldi's four seasons on june 9th at the pioneer cabin um this is great so uh, people are wondering people are trying to guess what instrument you played sam in high oh, school oh it came up already uh, uh kim on the chatterbox has it correct i played trombone in high school trombone yep. got the big it was, uh, boy. it's it's a weird instrument because everything's chromatic on it so yes. it's like yeah it's a lot of ear training yeah. yes a lot of ear training and yep. a lot of touch yes i love uh, audrey ochoa is a is a is a local uh she's brilliant and uh the 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 way that she plays her trombone is absolutely amazing boy do i ever miss live Audrey's shows incredible yeah. i miss live shows oh, so do I. I can't wait to get back uh Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park do not mind. I'm speaking on their behalf. If you have your classical music cranked as you wait in their drive through I mean, don't make it difficult on the staff, but they'd love to see you. They want to remind you that if you're feeling like a date night, but you don't have a, a ton of bank to spend, they've got their, it's a fantastic treat combo. The team's at Dairy Queen for five bucks after 8 p.m. Five bucks after 8 p.m. You can mix and match chocolate dip cones and sundays. Make sure you visit the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park and let Mike and Mark and their teams know you're there because you're a real talker. The team at Kubi Energy will be presenting positive reflections again on Monday as we get our weeks started off on the right foot. You can send us your great news stories, your beautiful photos and videos to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Kubi Energy is a Tesla certified solar installer with offices in Kamloops and Edmonton. It means they can do work projects large and small commercial residential industrial in bc and alberta plus here's the thing i love they do the paperwork for you so don't have to worry about tapping into all the government programs they're experts on that and they can tell you how you can save money on a number of fronts the team at eden landscaping is ready to get going on building dreams uh, into reality they're the team that has for more than 20 years helped people envision their perfect outdoor space whether it's a cook station a swim spa maybe you want to do something about that curb appeal that you know has been sorely lacking and you could use that expert eye. Check out what they do at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can also find them under the sponsors tab, Eden Landscaping at ryanjesperson.com. 
and the team at McBain Camera. Very proud to be partnering here with Real Talk. You know, they've got six convenient Alberta locations you can visit, or you can live chat with one of their team members right now at McBainCamera.com. They're Alberta's best destination for photographers and content creators, and that includes carrying the Nikon Z50 camera. This is your chance to get stunning 4K Ultra HD with 1080p slow motion time-lapse mode and a whole lot more. You can download Nikon's webcam utility and live stream from Zoom, Twitch, YouTube, or more like a pro. And here's the benefit for real talkers. When you order a Nikon Z50 body or kit at McBainCamera.com, enter the promo code REALTALK, one word, at checkout to receive a free ProMaster Hitchhiker tabletop tripod with your order at McBainCamera.com. Final shout out to our presenting or rather our sponsors at Alta Moving and Storage. We can call them our, they can be our presenting moving sponsors. There we go. We're happy to have them on board. Alta Moving and Storage, they've got the two-fold approach to take the stress out of whatever your scenario calls for. You need to find a home for something that's taking up too much space in the living room, but you're not ready to let it go. Short and long-term storage solutions plus, they've got those pod-style moving containers. They know the impact that that idling 18-wheeler outside your home can have the moving trucks here and you're not ready take the stress away with a pod style moving container if you need labor you need the brawn they can supply that too just give them a call or find them online at altastorage.ca tomorrow's show is going to be a big one uh, out of the gates uh, we're going to talk to a couple individuals that i know will have a lot to say karen gosby's got a powerful book out on surviving domestic violence. She's been working with the mayor's office in Calgary to introduce a new program, an important one. So Karen Gosby and Calgary's Mayor Nahed Nenshi will join us tomorrow at 10.30 Eastern. That's 8.30 Mountain Time. And then by popular demand and request from Real Talkers, Penn State climatologist Dr. Michael E. Mann, plus more on tomorrow's Real Talk. We'll speak with you then.